Oh, well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Stress Free Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, and uh, we always joke about uh, flawless launches, but uh, this one actually was. What do you know about that? I um, hope everybody's doing well. I was uh, busy last week. I was out um, doing some fun stuff all week long. Starting last uh, Tuesday morning, I uh, was up around 6 and had to be on location at 8, and uh, we shot... Um, 13 episodes of uh, the Cold War on video, uh, three the first day and then two every day after that. Uh, I don't know what it was. I know on the first day they said I read, uh, I think it was 48 pages of, um, 48 pages of, you know, single space content, whole width, and it felt like it. Um, but uh, it was a tremendous cruise, a tremendous job. Uh, I couldn't be happier with the results. The the set was fantastic. We um we had the uh had a different costume for every episode, so thirteen costume changes. They were all kind of that sixties, early sixties kind of thing. So that was great. Hi to everybody who's saying hi. Um and um and it was uh just a complete blast. Uh somebody's asked, is it the same step as on the air? Yes it is. As a matter of fact, um when they made the move, there were a couple of switches out with producers, Daily Wire, when they moved from L.A. I recorded um, recorded the Cold War, what we saw as um, audio only a couple of years ago now. I think it was probably end of 2019, early 2020. It was before the pandemic, and it was after Apollo 11, so probably last days of 2019, I would say. And um, when I recorded it the first time, we, um, I, you know, write a script. And then they'd schedule time. I'd go and record the one script. So it was, I don't know, 13 different recording sessions, I guess. But this time, uh, we were we were just pounding them out. And because um, because of that little uh, switch, they uh, couldn't, couldn't get a hold of the original final shooting scripts. So we had to um, we had to uh, take the actual episodes that aired, and then. Um, and then we had to do an audio transcript to those and reformat them. And unfortunately, there were enough bugs in that, in ter- mostly in terms of punctuation, that after the first uh, one or two uh, recordings, we realized that the, um, the, the just the simplest way to do it would be for me to get in the chair and just read through the whole thing. Now, some of these, the longest one was 24 pages long. It's an hour and a half. And so twice a day, uh, I would read, I'd come in, I'd read all of it through, just glib it through, you know, and that should be a comma. What, what, what's that word? You know, fast? That doesn't make any, it just doesn't make any sense. Lasts, lasts, it's supposed to be lasts, and that kind of thing. So actually recorded 26 episodes of, uh, of uh, the Cold War. It is really, really um, great. Oh, and thank you very much for that, um, what is that, Anna Wyatt's song? Please hit the like button. It helps, believe it or not. Uh, so anyway, it was epic, and it took me away from everything. I was really getting there. I had to be there at 8. Often didn't get out till after 7, and a lot of reading and a lot of stuff like that. But in any event, um, and thank you for the kind words there, Jaeger and everybody else. In any event, uh, it's a 43-year history, and... I have, um, I've forgotten how much I liked it. 
it's really, really great. So people are asking uh, two questions. Number one, when will it be ready? And number two, will it be available on uh, BillLittle.com? Uh, they are hoping to have it finished by December. Uh, it, I, I don't see any way that it can be on, um, on BillWhittle.com. The, the, the simple fact of it is that um, the Cold War, like, uh, like several of the other things, were jobs I basically had to take to keep uh, BillWhittle.com rolling along. And, and I like doing them, don't get me wrong. I think Apollo 11 is the best work I ever did. But um, they are paying for it. It's a work for hire. And they have... Uh, their own streaming service, uh, Daily Wire Press Plus, uh, and um, and I signed up for Daily Wire Plus because I wanted to watch uh, uh, the Apollo 11 series. I have a pretty good feeling that they probably would have given me a free membership, but I didn't want to ask them. And, you know, I know things are tight now for everybody, but that wasn't. You know, we're all on the same team. I almost consider that to be like a almost like a tax deduction. You know, anything anything we do for the team is is just great. So, um, in any event, it is, uh, it is an epic, 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 epic history. And uh, the two highlights of which, were going into it, I remember the things, the two segments I liked the best was, uh, were uh, Project Azorian and, um, and Operation Bolo. And having just read through them both again, I realized, nope, that's it. Those are the high points. They're fantastic. So, there's that. Uh, somebody have asked if I vote already. Yes. In fact, uh, since uh, we have mail-in ballots and we still have another week, I've uh, not only voted here in California, it gives me plenty of time and opportunity to vote several times before uh, Election Day, and I'm looking forward to um, to scooping up all of those un, uh, unfilled-out ballots and just mailing them in. Uh, and we'll talk about the election, obviously, in a, in a few minutes here. Um we had to uh, cancel a couple of Stratosphere Studio shows because of that shoot. And I'm sorry to say we're going to have to cancel the one on Monday as well because um, on Monday, um, I don't know, a week ago, I guess, got an invitation from our friends over at Daily Wire. And they asked me if I wanted to come out to Nashville and do their election night coverage with them as kind of a, you know, plug-in monkey. And I said, yeah, man, I'm down for that. Absolutely. That's great. So um, I will be in Nashville for the, uh, for the election results. And I'm probably be a, a color commentator uh, as usual, but nevertheless, it was really fun. It was a fun place to be in 2020, and I get the feeling it's going to be a much better uh, outcome than 2020. Um, and uh, and I don't think that. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to keep saying this, but basically, as I said, uh, you know, you get one sneak attack per war, right? You get one time when Nobody's looking at the radar or, or, or nobody's, you know, nobody's uh, confronting the guy at the front of the airplane who says he's got a bomb. Uh, so um, so in, any, in any event, I'm really excited about that. And I've got a couple shows to pitch to the gang over there. And uh, so I'll be leaving Monday back on Wednesday. <laughs> Eric's, Eric Gott says you should book a one-way flight. Uh, look, it's, I tell you, Eric, and the rest of you, it's, it's challenging being out here. Um, and, uh, and um, you know, if I wasn't married, things might be, um, might be a little different, but I am, so they're not. Uh, and Russ uh, says he misses the firewall videos, and I do too, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a second because we have some interesting ideas I think we're going to get to. 
Um, so uh, Action Contexts in the Twitch stream says, Daily Wire, put all your previous stuff on YouTube for limited time only. Can't afford Daily Wire. All I can afford is BillWhittle.com. Well, that's the correct decision to make anyway. Thank you. And it's only subscription I have. The choice for me is one or the other, not both. Uh, Boring Shapiro on YouTube, and I'll the last time I'm going to see it. So, look, I, I, I'm going to go and talk to them in person. It's not something I want to do over email. It's something I want to do buddy-to-buddy, -buddy and presumably over a great deal of scotch. But what I'm going to try to do, and I don't want anybody to get their hopes up on this because they're shrewd businessmen, and um, I am uh, not. Hey, a Brook student. Uh, Brooke College student, hold that thought, and yes, I'd love to talk to talk about it in a minute. I am going to ask them if it is possible um, to get a uh, a private link that we can that we can allow our members to see it. I think the chance of that happening is slim, but I'm going to try uh, because I really like to be able to to do that, and it's not super large you know impact on them but as i said these guys are actual professional businessmen and it's in their interest to not do it so um yeah, liberal time run that's a good idea you know that's actually that actually sweetens the pot quite a bit there uh, uh lord sank i think they'd like that much better actually if i were to if i were to say hey how about if we just do it for three days or a week or something i think that i think that might be more um I think that might be more uh, palpable to them. In fact, I know it'd be more palpable. And um, I said palpable. I meant to say palatable. Um, and yeah, it it would be it would be great. And I can tell them, hey man, you know, uh, that's a chance for you to sign up all those Billboard.com members for uh, for uh, Daily Wire Daily Wire Plus. Okay, so um, so there's that. Uh, we. Um, I still have not responded uh, to, the, to the, the person who wrote this email. It was a, it's one of the most amazing emails I've ever gotten. Um, and it was, uh, we're talking about a split on revenues. We don't have, they're, they're not going to split revenues. It's either going to be a favor that they're going to do or because just the, the bookkeeping is, is really difficult. And they don't have to, right? They paid me and then they paid me again to do the shoot. So it's theirs and... Uh, and I couldn't be happier with them and, and grateful to them. And uh, I would advise you to go and watch it on Daily Wire Plus. I will ask, but I, as I said, I think the chances are pretty close to zero. Um, in any event, uh, I got an email several weeks ago, which I have not answered yet to my uh, undying shame. And the person who wrote it usually watches this uh, on Friday morning. So if you wrote the email, you know who you are. And I take this opportunity to thank you not only for the really good insights but also for the extraordinarily kind words. So that's a personal thanks, and I and I owe you I owe you one. Okay, so here's the thing. Um, uh, I, I believe I mentioned this before. I got an email from somebody who said that uh, that successful videos on YouTube are successful along three axes. So like a three dimensional problem. And he and he wrote that one axis is time, one axis is authenticity, and the third axis is is fun. And uh, that pointed out uh, probably more delicately and gently than than I deserve to be honest with you that the the show that we put out the most right angle is actually in the dead zone of all three of those axes it's right angle is is too long to be short video and it's sh too short to be a long video it's taken me a long time to come to realize that a lot of people just listen to this you know and and 
and I've listened to other people's long, long format podcasts. Hey, Chris. And I, um, and so that's where you want to be. You either want to be two minutes or less, or you want to be long enough so that you can kind of just put it on and then not have to keep worrying about, you know, finding, finding a new version. So, so we're in the dead zone on that, on the, um, on the authenticity and the fun axes. They're also they're not they're not at zero, but they're they're in the middle. They're in the dead zone. So, for example, the way we do them now, uh, right angles are not scripted, but it, but they're not exactly spontaneous either. We are giving spontaneous answers, but we're giving the spontaneous answers to questions that we've already that we already know are coming and that we have discussed. And so, um, and so I gave that a great deal of thought. And furthermore. Uh, and, and certainly this isn't the only person to say that. Most of you who are watching now live have said this at one point or another. Uh, there, another set of, uh, of, another problem with the format the way we have it now is that we film it on um, Tuesday mornings. And that means that from Tuesday morning till Tuesday morning, that's the news that we can talk about. So... If something happens on Tuesday afternoon, we don't get to it for a week at which point, at which time it's old news. So based on on a number of suggestions and a number of, of, of comments from from all you folks, again, I don't have this completely iced, but I did talk to Stephen Scott about it. Oh, I'm, I skipped a step. So we were doing um, the, the backstage the backstage show live that we have for members only at BillWhittle.com. And that is where we first get to see these things. That's our first take on it. And um, and it's a lot more fun and we spend a lot more time just goofing around talking about, you know, cartoons and music and all the rest of that stuff. So um, so we got in, we, we did our backstage show as usual and uh, the topic I brought was, um, was this article that was on uh, this idea of COVID amnesty. And I were a Ginnett and, uh, and Steve were a Ginnett and Scott was spirit, and uh, and the conversation got pretty heated, you know. It didn't get nasty, but it was enthusiastic. And towards the end of that, because it went on for 15, 20 minutes, towards the end of that, I realized this stuff that's going on right now is much better than what we would do it, when we get to, to doing this the way we normally do it. So, um, so... I said, hey guys, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to make this week's, my segment, the, uh, the COVID amnesty segment, I would like to make that my regular show for the week as a, as a test run. So that's, um, that's, what we, that's what we did. So um, again, we don't have any of this exactly locked down, but, but it's, it's, it's real close. Um, what we are hoping to do is we are hoping to turn uh, right angle into um, maybe 45 minutes to an hour live and three times a week so that we would get, again, I, I, I don't want to commit to this because we're still working it out, but if I had my druthers, what we would do is three times a week, we would come in, each one of us would bring a topic for the day. We would broadcast the show live. When we were done, we would have a, We'd have about an hour, you know, about an hour segment. We'd post that segment. Then we would take that hour and we would um, give it to our editor. And then we'd edit out my segment, Steve's segment, Scott's segments, 
those would be about 15, 20 minutes each. And then we would take the best 30 seconds from each one of them, and then we'd put that on YouTube as a short. And, um, and I think that's a much, 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 much better idea. Uh, we have a lot more fun on the backstage show because, you know, we kind of feel like nobody's watching, but that's the authenticity axis, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of this is just you're bringing, meaning at least me and, and probably a lot of other people too. Not only is it a question of me coming back, coming into this uh, internet video world from a television background. Oh, and by the way, when we do this new format, no opening, credit rolls, no music, nothing in, right? So um, all of that stuff, like the opening credits, you know, I got a, got a uh, an After Effects template from I don't know, almost eight years ago now. Um, so all that's going to go. And um, oh, and by the way, for the for for the show this week on on um, COVID Amnesty. This will be the new format. It's just the three of us live, real time, and and so that that's kind of the test run. And because it's the test run, we just put it on. It's like bam, here it is, and uh, and then at the end we go back to our regular three panel format and say, hey, this is what we've been thinking about doing, and and, and what I think uh, would really work. And so just a little explanation so people don't get frightened and confused uh, by all this by all this new stuff. But in any event, um, I think that's really really exciting. So. That leaves the question of, um, of what, uh, what do I do? Um, the, if we're doing, especially if we're doing, yeah, like Friday night tight style, exactly. It'll be, that's like, or, or, or drinker after hours. So, so it'll be live. And then we'll, like I said, it'll be a long version. There'll be a 20 minute versions, three 20 minute versions, and then three 30 second versions. So, um, so yeah, it, it you know this uh, right angle uh, came out of the format of trifecta, so it's a twelve-year-old show now, and um, and it's time to, to change. So uh, it's hard to it's hard to get out of old. Um, it's not even habits really. It's more like styles, probably a better word. So in any in any event, that's it. In script all the graphics and all that stuff are going away. Nobody cares. Everybody's seen it before. Uh, what matters now, and and this again, I I'm so grateful to this uh, to this incredible six page analysis of this um, uh, authenticity, fun, speed, you know that kind of thing. That's what that's what there is now. So that's what we're gonna do. I hope, I think, and we're gonna have to uh, do a lot of budget cutting around here too. I think we're gonna uh, close off some of the studio space, which is. Going to tighten up the going to tighten up the ship, and then um, we'll see if we can get more um, get some more members. Now, um, so the question is, what about me? What do I do? Uh, I haven't done a moving back to America in almost probably two months. Just been whacked with this Daily Wire stuff, which I am required to do, not because of Daily Wire, but I'm required to do it because I need that cash infusion to keep keep the doors open here. So, um, having just finished uh, the Cold War and uh, being right smack in the middle of the, um, the, the, the Soviet secret police thing, there was a lot of writing, um, I, think, uh, I think the answer is for me to do one 
written thing a week, which would probably be firewalls. They'd probably be uh, somewhat shorter and, and not quite so, here's every single thing you need to know about that. But it would be written, so uh, I got to listen to the sound of my own voice quite a lot in the last week. And, um, and, uh, and so I think that's it, you know, and certainly the, the, the most feedback we get. So I'm thinking, you know, I'll, I'll just uh, kind of do it that way. One, I've mentioned this a few times before. One of the things I've got basically just sitting here ready to go is, uh, is something on um, uh, understanding the national anthem. You know, everybody sings a song and nobody, very few people, I know, I know virtually all of you listening now understand what the song's about, but we have never, I'm not aware that anyone has ever broken the song down, not, not so much from its historical point of view, but, uh, okay, Wizard, it, it, thanks. Not so much from its historical point of view, but from its um, emotional point of view. So that's, you know, probably four or five minutes, and I'll, if I put a firewall thing on it, it looks a little more... Uh, permanent and that's permanent that's the word that's the word uh, that um, that comes to mind here so if we open up these uh, if we open up these right angles we'll be covering the news stuff and we'll be covering it a lot better and there's no point in me doing a, a, either a live or an hour commentary on news if we're doing that with trifecta especially if we're doing it uh, three times a week so the thing I realized about um, what during the time I was doing the Cold War is those things and the firewalls and stuff, there's a there's an evergreen quality to them. They're ideally they're permanent. They're about bigger things. Um, right now, I, I'm under a tremendous writing burden, and I probably will be for a while. So I think I just need to keep them simpler and shorter, and just get out as many as I possibly can. But in any event, that seems like a good alternative to um, you know to uh, to that. Uh, and then. Uh, just the last thing, and then I guess we'll just dive into questions and stuff. Uh, also, um, there's just some some there's some fruit that's just such low low high end fruit; it's practically underground and and just sitting there rotting away. Uh, there's um, you know there's uh, you can um, you can support the channel on YouTube. There are the super chats that everybody's been talking about. There are um, there's obviously Patreon, and and. Um, our website does not have any uh, options to pay through either uh, Zelle or Venmo or PayPal or anything like that. No, a lot of people don't particularly like that, but you know, we're, we're sending a check really. So, um, so yeah, we're just um, we're just going to have to. Uh, the plan is to just really re-rig the ship and tighten it up and and uh, scrape the barnacles off the hull and, and see if we can't uh, get some more uh, speed out of this old girl. So that's what we're. That's what we're planning to do. Alrighty then. Um, I think uh, I, I I saw um, where to go. Hang on, beg pardon. Scrolling, 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 scrolling. Broke college student. Do you want to pop that in there? Um, and I will take a look at uh, BillWhittle.com first, and then we'll I'll see if we can get over to Facebook. So let's uh, do that. Oh, mamma mia. Come on, baby.
looking to parallel economy. Hmm. Is that like a online bank or something? We we uh, we work with um, recurrently. Uh, but anyway, all right. Let me uh, put this over here. Uh, you go over there, and you come back here, so I can see both streams. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. All right. Um, all right. Uh, just because I said I would, because he's a fine fellow and, and uh, outstanding member of the um, of the uh, non uh, deceased. Uh, uh, demographic here at the uh, Stress for Lunch. I'm going to get to this one first from our, our friend, broke college student, who's been really outstanding. Um, so the question is, in, again, it's in the Twitch stream live here. Where do you think, what do you think about the Yoram Douglas debate? I've never heard of it. The event was a panel during NatCon 2020 in which the topic of allying religious conservatives and classic liberals was it. Yoram's main points were that it was difficult for non-rebellious youth to fly straight and narrow, get married, and have and raise a family. His point that the Christian majority is unable to a large extent raise their children religiously through the removal of school prayer, etc. Douglas's main point was that things have happened that need to be accepted, like the pill, and that there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. Also raises the point that there was never a time in which things were easy between the sexes. Well, I'll tell you what, that's a, that's a heck of a question. Um, uh, and somebody pointed out Dan Pagino's alternative to PayPal, so I'll get into that too. All right, so um, so I didn't see the debates, but I could probably you know spin off something about that. The, I'll preface it by saying that just the entire trend during the last was it seventeen years? I think since I wrote since I published the book Silent America, uh, the country is much much, much more divided than it was then. And even then I was writing about, you know, the beginning of the Iraq war and stuff. So, um, so there is a tendency, and we've talked about this several times, and we've experienced it several times, not only me, but Scott and Steve and Zoe and everybody else, I'm sure. And basically the phenomenon is something like this. Everything we believe is under so much attack from so many different vectors for so long, and, 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 and it's so hard and tragic, um, uh, and 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 fills you full of despair and dismay to see all the damage that's being done. So I think what happens with conservatives is is that they get so used to being in their trenches. They're so used to constantly just being on guard. You know, Charlie's coming through the wire kind of thing, and it makes us jumpy. And um, and this leads to the um, uh, let's do. Bring that back, Stu, if you get a chance. So, so that um, that leads to us getting jumpy, and and the end result of this is the I followed you for 15 years, and you know, been a big supporter, but then you said something that I disagree with, so now you're dead to me. Um, I understand the dynamic. Believe me, I understand the dynamic. When when everything you believe in, and everything that either you or your or your ancestors fought for is just just being chipped away all the time by these people who are evil, rotten, evil bastards who are doing this intentionally and using your own goodwill against you. It gets to the point where anybody who um, who's not who's not speaking the orthodoxy can get flamed from behind, and 
the whole point of this uh, philosophy of individualism is, you know, you arrive at the truth through debate. So, um, so this I think is one of the problems that we have in the in the Republican Party. And I, just to address the the uh, debate issues, hang on. By the way, when I'm recording, I drink like a freaking camel. When I'm doing live speaking event too. Um, I think I probably went through eight or nine bottles of water in the course of a couple hours last week. Anyway, all right, so here's what, here's what I'm trying to say, right? We, we have found ourselves in an age that's so combative and so divisive that if we hear anything that is um, uh, different from our opinion on it, we kind of think, oh, okay, this is another, it's another attempt to, you know, to, to, to break through the cracks and widen the destruction. But, uh, but, you know, that ain't necessarily so. And that's my first hot take on, on the, the issue of the debate. If I understand the, the debate correctly, young people don't want to be part of the, um, of the Sunday morning, you know, uh, revival uh, tent. And the older people don't want to loosen their standards for which, which is what this whole thing's about, in order to make the tent bigger. Everybody knows we want to make a, a, a big tent, um, but you don't want to make such a big tent that you let anybody into it because the reason that there is a tent is, is to preserve these kind of values. So, so this, is where, this is where the friction is, and this is where the problem is in terms of getting young people to be what we would call more conservative. We cannot... Um, and at the same time, and, and Zoe's pointed this out, we actually shot our virtue signals today as usual, and we were about two minutes out of finishing the second one. We do them all in one take, so we've been talking for nearly an hour. And just as we're wrapping up the second one, boom, power just out. I thought it was uh, California, but it's kind of windy today, so so we lost everything, and we'll have to shoot it again tomorrow, I'm hoping. Yeah, and Marusha says conservatives have an image of being old prudes. Okay, that's fair enough. You know, that's that's pretty much true. So, so here's where I'm going with this. I think in our heads we all need to understand that that things are that things are so desperate and in such trouble that we need to, as a start, as a start, we need to realize that without without allies, without votes, nothing happens. Without votes, we just sit there and shake our fist at clouds, you know. Um, so we don't, uh, we don't want to exclude those people because they don't agree with, with us on everything. What we want is we want them to vote Republican. Now, by strange coincidence, I just told you that we had, um, uh, that lightning strike earlier today. And Zoe's topic, my topic to Zoe was, okay, this is the last uh, show we do before the election. It looks like there has been just tectonic shifts towards, um, you know, the Republicans, tectonic. Like I've heard like 25% shift in, in, um, in single women, which is not only the Democrats' largest single um, demographic, but it's also where their true believers are. And what, and what Zoe said I thought was really, really profound. He said it's not so much a question of them coming to uh, conservatives or Republicans because they want to vote for that. It's that the Democratic Party has so, gone so far off the rails that they forced them out. In other words... We're not drawing people. We're just the vote repository for people who cannot bear to vote for what the Democrats are doing. 
anymore. And I think he's absolutely right about that as a general rule. My reply to that was that um, that this election, and we're recording this on Thursday the 3rd, this, this election, uh, the midterms in 2022, which will be in just uh, five days, I'm not even concerned about the outcome. Um, the candidates that the Republicans are fielding are much, much, much more conservative than they are Republican. And they're also an awful lot more diverse than they, than they used to be. Um, you know, I, I, I'm terrible with names a lot of times, and uh, in fact, all the time. But uh, a couple months ago, this, uh, this Hispanic, I keep saying Hispanic, this is just drilled into my head, Latino. I know that Latinos don't like the term Hispanic. I don't blame them. So this Latino woman, Mexican-American, won a seat in Texas that has not been won by a Republican since the Civil War. And the reason she won the seat was that, the, that, that um, Mexican-Americans are really very traditional in terms of their morality. And so are black Americans, by the way. They, both, both of those demographics are, are generally much less tolerant of things like gay marriage and, you know, and anything to break up the family, you know, abortion, all those issues. They're, they're actually more conservative than, than you know, the traditional kind of you know, wasp uh, uh, old school uh, Republican you know, at the Yacht Club. Uh, with the uh, with the navy blue blazer and the cravat, you know, uh, so so they're moving because the Democrats are are kicking them out. The Democrats are beholden to because the uh, the Democrats are beholden to an ever shrinking base of ever more extreme people, and this uh, what is a woman thing is the end of them. It's the death of them. This is where this is the hill. That, that progressives are going to die on. And the reason that progressives are going to die on this hill of um, if you think you're a woman, you're a woman, is because you have managed to now uh, piss off everybody who's not trans. And what's the percentage of trans people? It's a fraction of 1%, certainly. So this is the inevitable result of the cult of victimhood. And the nice thing about trans is you can join the victim club. You may be a white male Christian, heterosexual, but if you change one of those things, your value goes up as a, as a victim. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a minuscule little, little thing, but they have to go that way, they, and they chose to go that way. So this is going to be the hill they die on because this is where Democratic Party policy, politics intersect reality in a way that touches everybody, not just politically. It's one thing to say that, okay, oh, inflation or budget or they're spending money or, you know, whatever. Both parties spent us into this, uh, you know, thirty trillion, thirty-five, forty trillion dollar hole, whatever it is. But the point is, everybody can can, can connect to the fact that, oh, okay, so my my daughter's been, you know, she's been uh, going to uh, practice and and working out and and running. She's on the track team and and you know she's been giving it everything she has for the last five years, and now she gets to come in second or third by you know 20 seconds because of this insanity and now you have when you have a supreme court justice who's sitting now but during her confirmation hearings it's like um well since women's issues women's rights issues and so on are, are uh, such a big topic can you uh, please define uh, what a woman is and and to have her say well i'm not a biologist 
if I was a voting senator, I would say, look, um, um, my job uh, in the Constitution is to advise and consent, right? I'm not, as a, the way I read this, it's not up to me to agree with your ideology. My job is to see whether you're qualified. The president appoints justices. That's how it works. Those are the rules. I would have said, if I'd been uh, one of those senators, I would have said, I'm going to vote against your um, uh, confirmation, not because I disagree with what you say, but I'm going to vote against you because you are, you are lying to me right now. And we both know it. Right? We both know it. When I ask you, what can you tell me what a woman is, I know and you know that you can't. But the politics that you are a, a part of says that you can't. And if you can't tell me the truth under, under oath in a Senate confirmation hearing, then that's grounds for me not to support you. It's not a question of whether or not I agree with your views on abortion or trans issues or anything. It's not my, it's not my job that the President of the United States appoints the people. Are you qualified, yes or no? And my answer would be, if you can't answer this question, this fundamental question, then, then you're lying to us, to our faces. And, and so, no, I, I, uh, that's the basis that I won't uh, confirm you on. Yeah, Marusha Dark says, are you a woman? You know, it's like, look, this is, this is where the insanity of the progressive movement has reached the wall, right? It doesn't get, this is it, this is it. Um, and it helps, although God knows it's painful, it helps to have, you know, some of these TikTok videos out there. By, I've been watching a lot of Odin's men lately, who apparently is a Florida Gator, at least he's wearing a Gator hat. Uh, former Marine, he's, he's actually extraordinarily uh, tolerant and uh, fair. But he looks at these TikTok videos, and, and, and that bleeding edge of crazy is real crazy. Real crazy. Um, and people don't want that crazy. Uh, Steve Green's show this week on Right Angle, uh, classic format Right Angle, um, is that uh, was that eighty percent of Americans say the country's out of control. And my response to that was, look, if it was eighty percent of Americans who said that we are going down the wrong path, that'd be really shocking number. But for 80% to not say, well, no, we're not going down the wrong path. There is no path. We are out of control. That's a, that's a, that's a flare, man. That's a flare from a, from a uh, passenger liner that's going down by the bow. And, um, and so, you know, we'll see. But uh, to come back to the question, we have to be, we have to decide what, we have to, all of us as individuals, you know, that make up conservatism have to decide where is the limit, what, what can we live with, with new allies, and what can we not live with. Um, that organization that may or may not have existed uh, several years ago here in uh, Los Angeles and elsewhere, the membership requirements were very simple. Um, it was a group for, you know, conservative conservatives in Hollywood, but, but we were crystal clear from the beginning. In order to be a part of this group, you have to do two, there has to be two conditions, just two. You have to be a member of the entertainment industry and you have to love America. That's it. We don't have any, we don't have any, uh, we're not 
excluding people because their position on global warming, abortion, uh, you know, none of it. If you love this country and, and you're in the entertainment business, then you're in. Um, so I thought that was a good uh, definition because if they love the country, that's somebody you can talk to. And when I say love the country, I mean love the, con love the country as it is and was, not the country that they want it to be when they, when they managed to socialize everything. So, um, so I, don't think it's, I don't think it's so much that there are um, a bunch of you know, prudes that are like actively excluding young people. I just think that it's badly packaged. Um, and, uh, and it has been badly packaged. And I think the single greatest problem with the packaging for conservatism, big mistake, and I've been talking about this when I was doing Tea Party events 10 years ago or more. When you walk into a Republican or Tea Party event, there's the Constitution and, you know, and it's a big print and here's, you know, Jefferson and here's an engraving of Franklin and all this. We're, we're, we're saying that everything we believe in is 250 years old. And, um, and uh, it's not. It's in the future. And no wonder people, young people, well, you know, this is a museum. It's not a museum. It's not a museum. But nevertheless, that's how we present it. Um, but and, and to wrap this up, but as I said, uh, this new group, this, this slate of 2022 candidates is really different. And, um, and while there are many, many examples, the two that, that really stand out for me are, um, are Ron DeSantis and uh, Carrie Lake. And the reason that Ron DeSantis and Carrie Lake stand out to me is not so much because of their conservative politics, although God knows they're both champions of that. The thing that Ron DeSantis and Carrie Lake have, and I think more and more re Republican candidates are starting to have, is they will not they will not walk into their kill box. They just won't even walk into it. I mentioned before uh, when um, right after Hurricane Ian, uh, DeSantis was getting a question from it was probably CNN. Uh, Governor DeSantis, you know, there's been a lot of cr criticisms about uh, the Florida uh, Florida slow response to the Hurricane Ian thing, and I was, and he said, whoa, 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 stop right there, just stop. See, this is why people don't trust you. He said that pretty much verbatim. We have not had a slow response. This you go ask anybody out in the field, and they'll tell you we've had an extraordinarily rapid and thorough and comprehensive response, and we're trying to improve it every day. And he just wouldn't, he just wouldn't grant the premise, and so. Not only does he get his point across and get more votes, he also embarrasses these buttheads in order, and shows them that they're just full of, you know, manure. They're just, they're just plain lying. When, 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 an, when a Republican can get a question that has, that has, for the last 50 years, put us on the defensive and, and, and doesn't even let him finish the question, now we are in an entirely new world. Now we're in a world where we are slowly, slowly, slowly beginning to realize the rules that we've been playing by the whole time. You know, these are the rules. We've been slandered for 40, 50 years, and we know we didn't do it, so we just kind of, well, you know, I don't know about that. No. Uh, Bill does see the uh, YT uh, chat stream, as a matter of fact. He sees them both. He sees everything. Uh, so, so, there's, so there's that aspect of it. Um, I think the way you get to a big tent is is to is to say to get to get 
people look we're going to get a lot of people voting republican for the first time this election I, I think there's no question about that large numbers of people voting republican for the first time so what does that mean well that means number one we cannot be you know oh you guys you're the guys who voted for biden or whatever well maybe they are but let's not forget that that we have to find what the news is and having seen how badly the the mainstream media and social media distorts the news we have to go hunting for the news there are millions and millions and millions of americans who don't because they didn't know right that's all they watch is is cnn who can blame them they they, they haven't heard any of this stuff so uh look i voted for walter mondale that was the first vote i cast and i'm not proud of that at all but nevertheless it's the truth um so most and by the way i would point out just to assuage my own particular uh, sense of, of shame and filth at having uh, admitted that Ronald Reagan was the same way. I didn't leave the Democratic Party. Democratic Party left me. Ronald Reagan was a Democrat until he became a Republican. And if it's good enough for Ronald Reagan, then it's probably good enough for just about anybody who's out there right now. Um, yeah, so Dave Big Booty says, so you're the one. I am the one. Um, so, so yeah, so, so if you see people that you don't agree with 100%, you know, poking around the, 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 the R headquarters. I don't think it's appropriate to either scare them off because of what mistakes they might have made in the past. They won't know it's a mistake until they see what this is about. And they won't see what this is about until they get a chance to access it. Now, with that said, with that said, um, my experience has been, and my experience in terms of hearing from people who've been on the other end of this, is that, is that, Virtually every Democrat that actually comes to any kind of a association of Republicans are blown away, blown away by how, how friendly they are and how anti-racist, anti-homophobic, anti-misogynist they are. I did a long series of interviews, and again, forgive me for not uh, remembering the name. Uh, no, I did not vote for Dukakis. I mean, everybody has their standards, right? Um, so... So uh, I've forgotten his name, but he was he was a major gay writer. He was, you know, he was like editor of a number of like large gay magazines. And he came to the Republican Party and he said he got nothing but love, nothing but love. And the people uh, who who he thought he w was friends with on the old team, they were the ones who were calling him a sellout, you know, and, and all these homophobic names. They were the ones who were who were giving him all this hate. Uh, he said there were the, the conservatives. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe how nice they were. And I've heard it again and again and again and again and again. I've heard it from blacks. I've heard it from Hispanics. I've heard it from Latinos. I've heard it from, uh, from, from gays. Heard, heard again and again and again. Yet Dave Rubin, great example, that when, when people finally get past what they've been told about us, then they, they're, just, they're just astonished. And furthermore, they're not only astonished and pleased at the new company, they slowly begin to realize, my God, I was lied to about a lot of things, wasn't I? Because I've been told these are evil people. They're the nicest people I ever met. And in that interview, I'm so sorry I can't remember his name, uh, but that's not unusual for me. I'll never forget this. There are some moments in the course of my career that just I'll just never forget, and this was one of them. He was talking about the kind of reception, and I said, what's the worst thing? This is a lifelong far-left Democrat, uh, gay man, and not just a gay man, a, a standard-bearer for the gay movement, said, what's the worst thing that a, that a conservative is, or a Republican has ever said to you? 
have you ever had anybody say anything negative? He said, well, yeah, kind of, I guess. And I thought, oh, boy, here we go, you know. Uh, this, I'm not going to enjoy this. And this is pretty much verbatim what he said. He said, I was at some event or something, and I was talking about what it was like, you know, to be, to be a gay person who's leaving the Democratic Party and coming to the Republicans. And, and after this event was over, this real traditional kind of person uh, walked up to me and said, um, hey, look at that. We just got raided again, I think. Hey, welcome. Uh, if you're here new, you're you're getting a dose of astonishment and uh, super super wisdom. Uh, we're talking about um, how to how the Republican Party can be more uh, acceptable for uh, young people. So stick around for that anyway, and then when you get boring, you just take off. So anyway, I was telling the story just before this giant influx came in. I was interviewing a man who was the editor of Gay Magazines. He was like a super spokesman for the gay movement. Lifelong Democrat, became a Republican. And I asked him, what was the worst thing that a conservative ever said to you or a Republican? And he said, oh, that's easy. I was at an event. I was I was speaking. And after it was over, this very conservative, you know, traditionally dressed man came over and said, uh, I have to tell you that the Bible tells me that I cannot agree with your lifestyle, but it's the lifestyle that I that I have the problem with. You seem like a, lo a lovely person. Uh, I just want you to know, you know, that we're we're praying for you and 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 welcome to the club. And and I said that's the worst thing anybody said to you and he said, "Yeah." He basically said the worst thing that a conservative ever said to me was nicer than the best thing that a progressive ever said to me when when he announces he's uh he's, you know, changing teams. So you know, that's what happens when you strip off the jersey, man. It's like it's it you, you don't you don't know what you're getting. So we're going to get a lot of people voting Republican for the first time ever. And um, we need to make sure that they feel welcome here and and that they understand the reality that they've been lied to about us from the beginning. Yeah. Marisha Dark hate the sin, love the sinner. Exactly. That's how I would like to to look at things. And if somebody comes in with a different opinion on a different opinion on global warming or a different opinion on an abortion or a different opinion on this or that, then then you can have a discussion about it. And either they may change their mind or you may change your mind. But in any event, if they're voting, if they're voting are, then they are voting to stop the destruction of the values of this country. And that's what we need. So that's what I would say about that first question for what it was worth. Now, let's see what we got here uh, in the um, stress-free lunch questions and more at uh, BillWhittle.com. If you're a member, you get to ask questions and we get to answer them uh, to the degree that I can get to answer them. All right, here we go. So let's see what the let's see what's in the peanut gallery. Okay, it's a new thread. Okay, so it looks like a new thread. Let's see what we got here. Um, to put on my cogitation spectacles here. Uh, what did I just do? Stream is frozen. I don't know. Anybody there? Hey, hello. Huh. You know what I bet it is? <laughs> Hang on. Are we back? We're back. Uh, that may have been just a regular, um, just a hiccup. Or, or, me talking about... Um, People who had who had been lifelong Democrats uh, and and gay advocates.
becoming Republican, that may have upset the algorithms somewhat. I would say there's a fair chance that I said something that made YouTube and Twitch just go, wait a minute, hold on now, can we let this out? Can we, can we, can we allow them to say that? Maybe that, maybe it's just completely random internet strike, who knows, but anyway, here we are. All right, so, yeah. Um, what do you think that the USAF or USSF, United States Air Force, United States Space Force, play, space plane was doing up there? The one that looks like a baby shuttle with no windows. Any speculation? And knowing what you know about space physics, was it a hunter robot which could somehow go from satellite to satellite to kill them? In, <laughs> road rider for the win. In other words, was it there to protect us from the terrible secret of space? If you haven't seen the terrible secret of space, it's uh, from the old days of um, uh, something awful. And, uh, and um, Lotax wrote uh, a, a long thread about the terrible secret of space. And, it, and there's a video out there called The Terrible Secret of Space, and I just love it. Okay, um, so uh, the vehicle in question is the, what is it? It's the X-37, X-34, X-X something or other. It is, in fact, it looks exactly like a small unmanned shovel, a shovel shuttle. I think it's the X-37. Nope, well, maybe. Yes, how about that? You got it right. Um, yeah, the Boeing X-37. It is a small winged um, thing. It's called the Orbital Test Vehicle, re reusable robotic spacecraft. And of course, it has to be small enough to fit into the uh, launch fairing on the, on the front of the thing. Okay, what is it there for? Well, I can tell you what I know about what it's there for. Um, it's there because it is a, a reconnaissance platform. And that re reconnaissance platform is capable of long duration missions. And uh, it, it has enough uh, has enough thrust on it to be able to make significant changes to its orbit. That's what that's what you want. Um, having just finished the Cold War thing, we talked about in my favorite episode, which is called Cloak, Cloak and Daggers. Cloak and Daggers. Uh, in the beginning of the well, it wasn't the beginning of the Cold War, but somewhere in the early '60s. Um, so we developed the U-2 spy plane, right? And and it flies high, but not fast. In fact, it flies real slow. <laughs> There's a quote from uh, from the Cold War, What We Saw series. There's a guy who um, was a pilot on the U-2 missions. And the U-2 missions could sometimes would sometimes fly at a ground speed of about 100, 120 miles an hour, real slow. And they're flying deep over Soviet territory. And this one U-2 pilot was talking about how he was on a 10-hour on a mission in this tiny little cockpit the size of a bubble. And, he, and somebody said, well, what's that, what's that like? And he said, well... To be honest with you, I ran out of ass before I ran out of gas. And I know that feeling from having driven long distances in 1970s uh, era automobiles. Anyway, so the U-2, high, but not fast. And then they shot down Francis Gary Power, shot down a couple more. So then we still need reconnaissance. Um, yeah, the Glomar Explorer, it's the same, it's the same, uh, it's the same episode. So we need something. We, we, we're working on, on, pro, on uh, Project Corona, which was, which is reconnaissance satellites. And for the, they're on a Thor booster with an Agena top stage, and I go through every one of the 12 failures that it had before they finally got one, right? But even when it was successful, the early uh, Corona Project satellites, television was so primitive that a TV image would do you no good at all. So the first reconnaissance satellites would fly over the Soviet Union, snap their pictures, and then 
they would eject this little box and this thing would re-enter the atmosphere and then it pop a parachute and probably a C-130 with what looks like giant whiskers in front of it would swing along and catch the thing in midair and then you'd take it back and you'd develop uh, the footage from the, this orbital surveillance. That's what orbital reconnaissance had to be in the beginning. Okay, so um, uh, somebody says my audio is effing up and I would reply to that. It's not my audio, it's uh, YouTube's audio. Um, so we thought we would be safe if we flew, flew high enough, but we didn't. So we lost the U-2s. The satellites are not ready yet. They're, we're having a problem getting them into orbit, number one. And number two, you've got to recover the film. And so satellite imagery, satellite reconnaissance isn't quite there. We need something to fill the gap. So the U-2 was probably built, I want to say, in the very late 50s. And, you know, real orbital satellites probably didn't happen until the late 60s. So what do you do for the mid-60s? Well... You go to the same guy who built the U-2, and you say, uh, hey, uh, Kelly Johnson, uh, we're getting shot down on the U-2. Um, uh, we want something that, that is, you know, their SAMs are getting better, surface-to-air missiles are getting better, so uh, we need something else. And Kelly Johnson says, look, I'm not going to do uh, a, a, a U-2B. I'm not going to do a new version of the U-2. Uh, if we're going to do something... I want something that's not going to last for a year or be obsolete by the time we built it. That's practically a direct quote. Kelly Johnson says, I don't want something that's going to be obsolete by the time we build it. I want something that's going to last for a decade. I want something that's going to set some records going to last for a decade. Well, it turns out uh, he built something that set records that didn't last for a decade. They lasted for uh, 40 years and counting. So he built the, um, everybody thinks it's the SR-71. SR-71 is a later derivative. He built the A-12 ox cart, uh, single-seater, not a, two-seater like the SR-71. The, the, the chines are a little more compact. It's lighter and it's faster. Um, the uh, SR-71 has been said to go as high as 85,000 feet, but there are reports that the uh, A-12 ox cart could get to 95,000. And so, and plus, it was a stealthy design because it was so smoothly contoured. So all of a sudden, instead of a U-2 flying at 65,000, 70,000 feet at 100 knots, now we got something flying at 85,000, 90,000 feet at Mach 3 plus. Um, and uh, nobody's able to have a, a definitive answer, but it's generally agreed that in excess of 1,000 uh, SAMs were launched at the, uh, at the A-12 SR-71s. It never even got close. Uh, the, the, the OX uh, had so much, had such a small radar cross-section that most uh, ground-based radars couldn't see it until it was overhead. And obviously, if you only see it by the time it's overhead and it's moving at Mach 3. The, the OX, the OX at, at altitude could outrun most missiles that were, just outrun them, not outmaneuver them, just outrun them. So um, anyway, uh, so the OX really changed it while we were waiting for these, um, for these surveillance satellites. So back to your question about the X-37. Um, when I was uh, when I was doing the research on that and and talking about um, the evolution of reconnaissance satellites, because that episode Cloaks and Daggers is about spying, it's about about image, it's about intelligence, uh, SIGINT and human. And thank you for that, James. That was James Payne was very nice. So, uh, yeah, sixty years, not forty years. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, so. One of the things that I discovered was that the Project Corona eventually turned into uh, 
would, would launch um, uh, KH satellites, KH-11, KH-12. There might be a, I think there might be a 13. There's speculation that there's a KH-14. So the KH-11 is the Hubble Space Telescope. As a matter of fact, there's pretty compelling evidence that the reason we have a Hubble Space Telescope is because we had a somewhat obsolete uh, reconnaissance satellite, and we just kind of repurposed it. But if you look at the KH-11s and these surveillance satellites, they're the size of the Hubble. They're huge. And that telescope points down instead of points up, and now we just beam the images down and reliably, from several sources I've heard, that we can read license plates from orbit with no problem. And... Uh, oh, GRF2 gifted, oh, a National Reconnaissance Orbit gifted it to NASA. There you go. The Hubble twins. I didn't know there was a twin. What happened to the other one? How about that? Uh, I did not know that. Um, so, uh, so I've heard repeatedly that we can read license plates, and I have heard anecdotally from two people who would know that on a good day we can we can tell the time on somebody's watch, right? So that's that's pretty cool. Now here's the problem. My understanding is that is that the latest generation of these satellites are essentially stealth spe- satellites. Unconfirmed, I don't know. But the advantage to a satellite is, you know, you can't shoot it down without essentially going to war because now you've got all this debris, that's the end of space travel. But essentially, yeah, it's great. You can get whatever images you want to, but the problem with satellites is is they are in orbit, and that means they are extraordinarily, they're predictable to the, to the hundredth of a second, right? We know exactly when this thing's going to be overhead. And if the enemy knows when the camera's going to be overhead, then they stop doing what they're doing while that thing flies over. So the the real advantage to uh, having a space-based observation platform like the X-37 is, can you change the orbit? Do you have enough delta V, do you have enough thrust over time to significantly change the orbit? Because if you can change the orbit now, you can go over places you couldn't go over before, and you can go over the places you were going over before at different times. And that is, um, and that is it. Uh, so um, I suspect that's what the X-37 is for. I know that on, on at least one mission, it was up there for at least six months. Um, uh, I, my, my guess would be that it is a, a, a reconnaissance platform that has the ability to do an awful lot of... Uh, um, Delta V change its orbit a lot. It's also just barely possible. Uh, Rich, I haven't uh, read Blind Man's Bluff, but I know it very well, and I certainly know the tactics very well, submarine tactics. Um, so, uh, so that is is the most likely case. There is another possibility uh, that I've just heard once, just once, uh, certainly. Nobody ever told me it was classified. I just heard somebody speculating on it. But there is, it sounds like it's something that could be done uh, and would be cool to do. There is some discussion that there is a um, a ground-based system that can put out essentially a, like a like a tennis net, pretty much straight up, and anything that flies through that is going to have its uh, electronics cooked. Hang on a second. I just have to make sure everything's groovy and cool here. Okay, great. Um, And so it's possible that the X-37 is actually uh, not so much trying to do the same stuff as the orbital reconnaissance satellites. It's possible 
that what the X37 is doing is it's testing, essentially it's testing signal strength, right? That, that's another uh, possibility in any event. All right, so that'll do it for that question, I think. And, uh, and thanks for it, because I love this kind of stuff. Moving on. Cody Fett. Hello, Bill. I'm probably not going to be able to hear this question live since I've started a new job this week. First time in years. Congratulations, Cody. I really mean that. That's I, I know that feeling. I, I've been out of work long enough to think I'll probably never work again, and it's miserable. But I still wanted to spend sending one of the questions I've been building up to ask you since 2009. So without further ado, here's one of the more controversial ones. Uh, okay. Uh, this may be the question we addressed earlier. Similar to. It's become clear, sadly, over the course of this year that conservatives have their own brand of NPCs, uh, that while distinct shares many of the same qualities as their progressive counterparts, that distinct comes from how while the progressive NPC goes with whatever the current thing is, the conservative NPC will instantly reject the current thing no matter its content. Yeah, this is exactly what we talked about earlier, and this is exactly what I was talking about when I said we've been under attack for so long that we start getting tr trigger happy and and we automatic automatically think anything they say is a lie and if if they said you know if i if they said that you know it's raining outside and it is raining outside we'd say it's clear that's that's not good um this presents two problems the first is that it rejects the possibility of the current thing being correct for once amen and the second is that it utterly ignores the possibility that something they might something they like might become the current thing. The very fact that we have a phrase like red scare means at some point in the past conservative topics became the current thing. And there's a two for example, because as you know, the communists were really infiltrating American society. However, I know this is a controversial, I know this is a controversial because people are going to take it as an insult, but I do not intend it that way. What I intend is to get to people examine themselves and what they're saying so that we don't get so caught up in our own pride that we miss something critical push away possible allies, or do something just plain stupid. You've called this process mental hygiene before, so you're clearly not averse to the idea, and perhaps you can flesh it out in a way that I can't. So what do you think of this, Bill? Uh, I'm sorry it's so long, but I had to trim it down. Well, by happy coincidence, Cody, the first hour of the show was about exactly that. Well, the, the, the second half hour, anyway, was about exactly that, about how um, how we we are now about to get a bunch of people voting Republican probably for the first time in their lives, and we need to understand that uh, Ronald Reagan started out as a Democrat, I started out as a Democrat, and to, and to welcome newcomers who are very tentative. They're not coming to the Republicans because they like Republicans. They're coming to the Republicans because the Democrats have forced them out. That's a completely different story. It's much weaker glue. So now we have a chance to welcome in a bunch of people, a bunch of people who are voting Republican, and if we welcome them and we and we and we disagree with them in a civil manner, then that will actually make them more fond of us. If, on the other hand, we start getting into that, oh, so you're, you know, you believe in global warming thing, or you, then, then, okay, great, we'll, we'll be, you know, we'll be solid gold, 100% pure conservatives, and, um, and we'll sit in our, you know, caves or our cabins and watch the country fall apart because we didn't have the votes. Um, so. Yeah, I'm not. I, I don't think anybody should. Um, needless to say, I don't think anybody should give up their own morals. But if somebody's thinking about joining the team, and since joining the team is, it's not a question of talent, right? You're you're just dealing with raw numbers here. Uh, you know, if if a if a Democrat 
doesn't vote for the Democrats, that's that's a minus one. But if that same person not only doesn't um, vote for the Democrats, but also votes for Republican, it's minus two for them. So, yeah. So let's do it. I hope I answered it earlier. I, th I think so. The Nancy Grace Roman, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope um, is one of the Hubble twins, and it's not launched yet. Correct, right? Uh, I didn't know that there was a twin. I wonder what it's going to do. Um, it's going to well, uh, certainly, at the very least. Oh, there you go. I haven't heard um, the Big House before ever, but that is. That is, in the Twitch stream, that is maybe the best thing I've heard in months, if not years. The Big House says, uh, stick to your values, not to your interests. Your interest is getting your values in place. And as long as you don't violate your values, then anything that you, that you can do to make these people feel comfortable and welcome even if you don't agree with them on everything, even in fact, if you disagree with them on maybe even most stuff, that's not important. What matters is, is that they are making decision to vote R and, and they deserve the time to learn the things that we all learned. Some of us are lucky enough to have grown up this way. I wasn't. They're going to have an entire universe of, oh, what? You guys aren't Nazis? No, no, we're not. We're really, we're not. And you don't hate me for being, no, we don't. We, half of us, the same way. You've got to really be uh, doing it. Um, so the purest Republican like the Fox Yeah, Political Animal says the purest Republican. And, and I only get with that because I've had a number of people who are more conservative than thou. And as I've said, this is I've been saying this for 10 years. The one thing that makes me want to hang up my spurs is when somebody says, I've been following you for 12 years and just supported you, and then you said something I disagree with, and now you're dead to me. Okay. All right. Uh, on the road, speaking live, I have said that when you get down to it, every single one of us is a political party of one. There's not, well, I suppose, given the limited number of issues and the number of people, but essentially, essentially, there's nobody out there who agrees with me on every single thing that I think, right? It's just a question of, do, do I agree mostly with you or mostly with you? And now we're getting an enormous shift coming. And, and I say, let's not, let's not screw it up. Give them the benefit of the doubt if they've decided to you know, cross the line and make them welcome. That's how you win friends and influence people. And that's what we want to do. We want to win friends and influence people. All right, here we go. Joe R. Um, hi, Bill. Thank you for getting my question. I always appreciate it when you do. Thank you for asking it, Joe. And I know there have been many times when uh, when the uh, the forum at BillWhittle.com has been a lonely and uh, dry, dusty prairie with nothing but the sounds of tumbleweeds. Just so I'm happy to, to do that. Uh, hey, thank you very much for that, too, um, uh, Scorch191. There's some very kind things here. Um, we... We uh, and I'll get back to this. And uh, Brendan Allen on YouTube says, um, "Can I discuss more about the video for the Cold War?" I can't actually. They asked me, kind of asked me to keep it, in, you know, relatively under wraps. I haven't revealed anything that's not already on the podcast, but they wouldn't let me put out pictures of the set, for example, because I thought the set was great. Um, and um, and please do a video for America's Forgotten Heroes. That has already been. That's that's a done deal. That's going to happen. Um, and that one, we may be able to really open up. Okay, so uh, so back to this. Thank you, Jeremy. Love you too. You guys are great. So let's go back to the, the question here. 
Midterm elections are less than a week away, and as I write this, it's looking pretty fantastic for us. However, there are reports of early voting and mail-in ballots breaking records in the Democrats' favor, although their early voting lead is significantly less than it was in 2020. What are the chances of another 2020 happening, this election cycle in the wee hours of the morning, and then with ballot counting continuing for over a week until they get the result they want? I think this will happen, but maybe not as blatant as 2020, but it still has consequences nonetheless. There, is, there are already reports of problems in Pennsylvania where 250,000 mail-in ballots were sent undisclosed, to undisclosed or unverified people or locations. Imagine my shock. I watched the statewide races closely, and I'm seeing good signs for us. We will likely win Senate seats in Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and shockingly, as of now, it looks like we possibly take a Senate seat in New Hampshire, maybe even Washington State. Have you seen the polls in New York? Lee Zeldin leads Kathy Hochul by a point in some polls and may pull off an upset victory. Yes. Republicans need this upstate vote, the Long Island vote, at least 30% of the New York City vote in order to flip the state. And as I write this, Lee Zeldin has 37% uh, support in the city, according to polls. Zeldin crushed Hochul in the debate, and as all the rest of the Republican candidates did all across the country, yeah, especially with Fetterman, that was just painful. I mean, seriously, just... Just, we'll just talk about that for a minute when I get through this. Um, am I being overly optimistic and unrealistic? Stranger things have happened. 55 Senate seats and a Republican New York governor should be enough to snap people out of their woke stupor. As I write this, the betting odds have their R's taken the Senate at a 68% chance of 53-47 and the House at 88% chance at greater than 50-seat gain. Yes. P.S. Carrie Lake is amazing. Yes, I've talked about her already during the show. I couldn't agree more. She will be the next Arizona governor. I think so. She's a rising star in the GOP, unless Arizona cheats again. God bless Joe. Thank you, Joe. Um, lots and lots and lots and lots of interesting stuff there. So the, the the short, the immediate question is, will they be able to cheat their way out of 2022 the way they cheated their way out of 2020? Let's just take a specific example to, to make the case for why I don't think they will be able to. Again, I think, I think that... Uh, November 2020 was a sneak attack on the country, and it caught us as much by surprise as 9-11 or Pearl Harbor did. That's the benefit of a sneak attack is you don't know what's coming. It's it's just a it's it's a sucker punch. You just said la la la, boom, and down you go, right? And by the time you get up, it's over, right? By the time you react, it's it's done. Um, and that's what I think happened in in 2020. So let's just take a concrete example, right? Um, <laughs> Regular viewers of the show will remember I seem to be incapable of remembering whether that large county center in Atlanta was either the um, all-state arena or the state farm arena. I want to say it was a state farm arena, but in any event, we know the one we're talking about. So let's take that as an example of of what why this thing why I think this could be different. So long before that video came out, during the night of the uh, during the night of the election. We're watching the results come in, starting to look really, really good. Florida's in hard for, for uh, Trump. Trump's looking good everywhere. And then the first news that I can remember hearing about irregularities was, why haven't they called Georgia yet? First time chat from um, Bird Game Bot. Thank you, Bird Game Bot. Okay, so the first irregularity I can remember on the night of the election was, uh, why haven't they called Georgia yet? Well, they haven't called Georgia because a key voting district uh, is uh, is late reporting their their votes, really? Yeah, it's a it's it's a one of the biggest um, one of the biggest you know uh, counting uh, uh, centers in 
in Atlanta, and they're not reporting their votes. Why not? Well, they say there's a broken water main there, and so the building's flooded, so they have to kind of, you know, get the ballots up above water, and, and maybe just, you know, a couple hours or so before we get the final vote in. Okay, okay. Um, that's the first thing I heard. And then Arizona gets called for Biden with 4% of the vote in or 5%. That wasn't right. And then the next thing you know is that, oh, counting has been suspended in, in the five or six states, I can't remember now, I've blocked it out, uh, that uh, Biden needed to win and that Trump was winning in handily, but we've stopped counting that night. Uh, and we'll start counting in the morning. And, and all of us are thinking, okay, this is, this is what a sneak attack is, right? When I, and this is the absolute truth, without without embellishment, on the morning of 9-11, my friend Fritz called me and said, turn on the TV, woke me up. I said, what channel? He said, doesn't matter what channel. Okay. And when I turned on the TV on September 11, 2001, I came into the story when the first tower had gone down, but the second tower was still standing. So the first image I see is an image of a helicopter, lots of dust in the air, flying around the World Trade Center. And I swear to God, I'm not making it. This is what cognitive dissonance really is, is that I remember saying to myself, isn't that weird? I, I thought that I thought that there were two towers. I thought they were twin towers. Obviously, I'm wrong because there's just one tower there. I couldn't process it. I didn't see it go down. And seeing the World Trade Center without the other one is like I must have been wrong about there being two World Trade Centers buildings because there's only one. And buildings don't just disappear. That's what that's what cognitive dissonance does. And that's what happened to us on election night. We were like, what? What? That's what happened on Pearl Harbor. You know, these guys are looking around. They did what? Yeah, all these bodies in the water and these burning uh, ships and, you know, all the people that have been gunned down on the streets. Yeah, what, 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 what happened? What hit us? That's what a sneak attack does. So. The, um, the radar operators uh, at Pearl Harbor, radar's really quite new invention at the time, uh, saw the incoming Japanese strike. They were expecting a flight of B-17s to come in. Uh, B-17's a big airplane. So they just assumed that what they were seeing was the flight of B-17s. And that was what they assumed on December 7th. But the thing I can tell you with certainty is that from December 8th until the end of the war, there were no radar blips that went unreported at Pearl Harbor. We all understand what I'm saying, right? So after you're down there looking at all these wreckage and all these dead, now you see something on the radar screen that doesn't make sense, you are going to ring every alarm bell possible. So back to the example of State Farm or, or Allstate. Um, so. Okay, so we're going to stop counting. So then they showed us the video out of the place, right? And uh, and there are the little group of observers, Republicans and Democrats. And uh, yeah, and somebody there was no sound. But the oh look, you know, I got a real problem on something. You know, is that we gotta uh, we gotta you know we gotta do something. Uh, blah 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 blah. And so you see the observers kind of like milling around, and then they're just so, sort of slowly herded out the door. Democrats and Republicans herded out the door, and then the doors are closed, and then a little bit of time goes by, and then they start pulling these. Um, these giant, you know, plastic tubs of votes out from underneath the table. Hello, Argentina. It's good to hear you. And then they start counting them again. Now, if at that location on this coming Tuesday, they say, you know what? 
it looks like we got another problem. We're going to have to stop counting. If you think those Republicans are going to go away, no. No, 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 no. They will not go away. They will not. We, we are now alert to that problem in the way that we uh, became alert to the fact that you could use commercial jets as, as cruise missiles or that you could launch a strike on the U.S. fleet. You get one sneak attack from any particular vector. And, and so I think it's going to be much harder for them to pull that off. Furthermore, I think their morale is, is extremely low. Um, despite what, um, what uh, Joe puts in, in the thing here about uh, early voter turnout, the uh, word I'm hearing from California going out to Democrats is we're looking at one of the lowest voter turnouts in history uh, for California. That's what, that's what they're saying. Um, I have never seen our side more motivated. I'm more motivated this election than I was last election. I was plenty motivated that, that, that election. But after the inauguration of uh, what's-his-name, I remember thinking, I, I cannot wait till 2022, right? I cannot wait till 2022. Um, and not only have conservatives been waiting for, Republicans waiting for this moment for two years, like every day, not only that, but in those intervening two years, so much has gone to hell that large numbers of people who voted for Biden are thinking, what the hell is this? You know, we, we were told he's this moderate, nice guy, and he's a, he's a cranky, bitter guy who doesn't know what day it is. Doesn't know. Yeah, LOL, 80 million. Of course not. Of course he didn't get 80 million votes. Of course not. That's behind us now. So I think that because of those two factors, number one, it's not going to be as easy to cheat as it was before. Number two, three reasons. If we see irregularities, it will not be a gobsmack situation like it was uh, on two years ago. It won't. It won't leave us like, well, I guess that's kind of weird, but you know, all right. So you know, because we just couldn't couldn't believe it, just couldn't accept it, right? Just couldn't accept it. And, and, and again, I'm looking forward to going back to Daily Wire. I admire them all enormously. Ben said, when Trump said there's something wrong, Ben said there's absolutely no evidence to that. And I said, the evidence is, is that they stopped counting. And even I wasn't, I mean, I, I had no idea what was going on. And it took days to sink in. But I, I think they're going to get shellacked. And I mean, I mean historically shellacked. And, and so, yes, of course they'll try to cheat. Of course they will. Um, I just don't, number one, I don't think they'll, we'll be as asleep as we were. And number two, more importantly, um, I think the margin of victory is going to be much, I, I think the margin of victory is going to be larger than the margin of fraud can, can be. Um, now, with that said, what do we do if things go the way it looks like we're going to go? Hey, a political animal says there's four Falcon Heavy launches for 2023. I can't wait. So let me just stay with this for a second. Um, so let's assume that we get these numbers that he's talking about, at least 50 seats in the House and a 53-47 Senate. So we don't have a supermajority. It doesn't mean we can. Um, it doesn't mean we can pass laws over a veto. Um, but, but. There are a couple things we could do that that we should do, and if we don't do it, then we really don't deserve to be living in this country. Um, the two things, the, the first thing I'm going to do 
when I come back after um, I get back is I'm going to I say I'm going to we all know what that means I, my intention at the time as I sit here is uh, to record a firewall called two out of three ain't bad and so and and then then and then look at what does two out of three give you what can you do with the house and the senate that you couldn't do before if you have just the house there are some things you can do if you have the house and the senate then there is a wider set of things you can do if you got all three you can do anything um so what can you do with two out of three well the two things that come to mind are number one you can launch um special prosecutors and launch congressional inquiries into voting irregularities and any number of other criminal activities right so you have the ability to do that you have the ability to do what the press should be doing and isn't doing you have the ability to to get to the bottom of things and in this respect i am highly encouraged by people like ted cruz and josh harley and uh, and, and senator cotton who don't seem willing to sit down and just take it among others right i've watched them i've watched them talking to zuckerberg and and i've watched them talking to um a lot of these people and and josh especially is like i, I just don't think it could be better done josh is just he's perfect he's perfect he's calm he's composed he's eloquent he's he's uh, he's he's just a, an attractive-looking guy who is under control. He reminds me of Mr. Smith. He reminds me of Jimmy Stewart in that regard. But he won't let them go. He won't let them go. And he sets them up for this. Well, it's funny you say that because you just testified you didn't do this. But but right here when you testified four months ago, it's, you said this, 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 and this. So so which one is it? You know, he's doing it like a lawyer, and that's how you need to do it. So okay, so number one, you can you can. Um, you can launch um, congressional inquiries into this. I mentioned before, and this is where I'm going to be going hard with this, if things go the way it looks like they're going to go. I think the single greatest strategy that you can do when you have two out of three is you, you can send legislation to the president to be vetoed, right? You know it's going to be vetoed. There's nothing we can do about that. But what you can do is you can set the you can you can construct the legislation in such a way and you can name it in such a way that by vetoing the legislation you paint them into a corner, right? For example, yeah, and you can impeach Biden. You can do all that stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Let's just do it every week. Whatever. By the way, by the way, oh wait, wait the the to impeach in the Senate. To, to to vote to expel in the Senate, that's a two-third vote, right, in the Senate? Is that what it is? I don't remember. I don't think it's just a simple minority. So I don't think we can actually accomplish that. But sure, send the articles of impeachment. Yeah, send them, whatever. You want to make this thing into a political circus, Pelosi? Fair enough. We could do that, too. Um, anyway, uh, what what I would do is I would, I would put together legislation like the, um, and I would call it like the, um, like the Fair Play for Our Daughters Act. You know, something like that, right? And and the legislation would be, we're not in any way in, in, intending to take away the civil rights or the basic dignity of, of people who are transsexual. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to say that there are from birth biological differences between men and women and that those differences, it's not just a question of your testosterone levels. It's a question of the mechanical advantage of having, you know, 40, five inch you know shoulders you know so and and the physical construction of your hips these are these are not 
things that you can medicate away. And so, so the uh, Defend Our Daughters Act of 2023 is basically saying that we are not, we find it to be unfair to the, to the, to the, to the young women who are engaged in athletics in this country for them to be competing against males who, who, who claim to be females. Whether they've had the surgery or not, whether they've had the hormones or not, it doesn't matter. It's not fair. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Send the Fair, da send the fair Play for Our Daughters Act to, to Joe Biden and make him veto it. And then keep doing that kind of thing, right? Just keep doing that kind of thing, right? The Reasonable Energy Plan for America bill, send that to be vetoed, right? And, and construct these bills in such a way so that you don't give them anything that they can, that they can use against it. So, for example, if I were going to write the, um, the Sensible Energy Plan for America, I would talk about ways that we could increase our solar and wind power along with whatever else we need. And whatever else we need is nuclear power plants and oil pipelines and all of that. But don't, but don't give them the opportunity to say, oh, see, they're against the green energy thing. They're in the pocket of big oil or whatever. No, no, no. No, we, we're, we're calling for the expansion of, you know, of, of solar and wind. It'd be idiotic not to gather energy that's just out there for free. And just don't give them the, um, don't give them the ammunition. Kick them in the nuts and don't stop. And make them veto. Make him, not them, make him veto bills that not only have rational sounding names, but that are such common sense fair issues that if somebody vetoes it, you are they make them make them reveal their hand. That's what I'm saying, right? Send out bills and make make them reveal their hand because they have to either veto them. If they let them pass, then they then they fall apart. Just do it. Yeah, there you go. Marusha Dark's got a great one. Um, you could you could uh, send uh, you could have the uh, House uh, draft the Senate. Uh, it, you know reconciliation you could you could deliver to the president's desk the um the stop sniffing children's hair act make him veto it right that's how you do it that's how you do it and mobile Moda says make a 25th amendment inquest i think that's absolutely completely fair invoke the 25th amendment right say this is not a political test we're not asking for an ideological purity test we're simply saying that um the person who is the most powerful men in the world should be able to remember what day of the week it is. We are asking for the for the president to take the long existing non-political, uh, you know, uh, whatever that what's that, you know, that thing of this latest psychiatric, uh, you know, they keep updating it the something 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 version six whatever, right? Say, so look, no, this is this is something that has been approved for cognitive uh, cognitive. Uh, uh, evaluation for uh, for uh, decades, right? Listen, no, make it, make him take it, and that would give you a chance to point out that the previous president not only took it but flew through it, aced it. Trump was challenged on it. Yeah, sure, of course. And what? And and why would you have a problem with that, right? We're we're not asking you to um, the DSM. Thank you. We're not asking you, uh, Miss Winnie. Thanks. We're not asking you to, uh, to you know, recite the Constitution. It'd be nice if you could. It'd be nice if you understood at least that. We're asking you if, if you can tell us what day it is today. 
Um, we're going to do simple, here's a series of numbers, just read them back to me, that kind of thing. Make them do it. And then that's that. Now, as far as legislative agenda goes, there's only one thing that matters to me in this election, and it's not even the border, uh, and it's not even big tech, because I think Elon has maybe cracked that for us. The only thing that this Congress has to do, there's only one thing this Congress has to do, and that is get the election system back to accountability. That's it, and that's all. If they do just that, then they will have saved the country. And if they don't do that, then, then we have no one to blame but ourselves. That is it, right? And, and, and fa phrase it in such a way that they simply look idiotic arguing the point. I'll give you a great example of this. A great example of this. Um, a, a YouTuber, um, young guy, went to, I guess it was UCLA, it might have been Berkeley, and he interviews a bunch of these students, and he says, do you think that requiring an ID to vote is, um, is somehow um, voter suppression? And every one of these white college kids said, yes, absolutely it is. It's unfair to poor people, it's unfair to black people, and gave all these reasons why having an ID to vote was racist Nazi behavior, right, and disenfranchising people. Here's the part about this where this gets brilliant. Then the guy, same guy, goes into a black neighborhood and asks 10 black people, do you think that you should be required to have an ID in order to vote? And every one of them says, well, of course. And then the guy, just to, just to put the stake through the heart of this thing, then the guy says, well, there are a lot of white college kids who said that black people aren't capable of getting IDs. And then you watch the reaction of the black people, and they're saying things like, what? And then they, really? Yeah, they're saying that blacks can't get IDs. And, 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 these, and these black Americans are looking, looking at the guy like, how do they expect me to fly on an airplane? How do they expect me to, to, to buy alcohol at, at, you know, at, the, at the supermarket? And then you got them, right? Then you got them. Well, see, ma'am, the thing is is that, is that these progressives think you're so stupid and so incapable of acting for yourself that progressives think that you're not capable of getting an ID, and progressives think that black people don't fly on airplanes. And they also think that black people don't buy a nice bottle of wine to have at dinner at a supermarket. That's why we're having this discussion. Boom, boom. Put them on the defensive morally, morally, morally. That's the plan. That's the plan. Put them on. Make them defend these policies and structure it in such a way that for once, 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 they walk into our kill box and not the other way around. Just, just, just prepare the battle space, right? We got all our artillery zeroed in. We got our machine guns in place. We're going to put out a lot of inflating fire. We got our, we got our, um, our claymores. You know, we, we, we're, let them walk, let them walk to us for once, right? Let them, let them take the bait for once. Let them take the bait for once and make them say it. Then the counterpoint, boom, you hit them with this. Oh, so well, black people th don't think that it's unreasonable to need an ID. The only people who are saying that black people can't get an ID are white millionaires. You racist bastards. That's number one. That's the punch. And then the counterpunch is voter fraud is voter suppression. Voter fraud is voter suppression. If I vote and I'm legally allowed to vote and somebody casts a vote opposite of mine and they're not legally able to vote, then that person has stolen my vote. They've stolen my vote. Boom. Get on top of it and never, ever, 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 ever 
let them have the, the moral high ground because they don't own it, and we've just walked away from it. Do what DeSantis is doing and what Lake is doing. Get right in their faces and say, listen, this is why nobody trusts you, and this is why nobody likes you, right? This is why nobody likes you. You're the racist. You're the ones who are saying black people are not capable of getting an idea. What, what planet do you live on? Oh, we already know what planet you live on. You live on planet Berkeley. Well, here's some newsflash for you, right? If you go out and actually talk to black people, you know, the ones that you are deigning, that you are, that you are, you know, the ones that you're protesting your white supremacy about as you exercise your white supremacy, go and talk to them and they will tell you, well, of course we have IDs and of course we would, it's not unreasonable. Punch them right in the morality and don't ever stop, period, boom. But when we come out of it, when we come out of it, I want, I want an election system, I swear to God, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. This is not exaggeration. I want paper ballots in every state that are that are that are voted on on election day, which becomes a national holiday. So there's none of this, there's none of this. You know, oh, oh, I couldn't get off of work. Poor, no, no, no. It's a it's a legal national holiday. You're already legally allowed to, but make it a national holiday once every two years. Congratulations, it's election day. Okay, great. And and I want you to go down paper ballot that is kept forever because. It's not that much space and it's not that expensive. Kept forever. So anybody, Republicans, Democrats, anybody can go back and count these things again with a suitable adult there so that they don't burn the ones they don't like, right? And I want the purple finger. I want the purple finger. I don't want a little sticker that they can hand out by the millions or that I can switch. I want a purple, a purple finger. You have to go down to the polling place and you have to dip your finger in ink and you have to have a purple finger to say that you voted just as in any other third world country where their election systems are utterly corrupt. That's where we are now, right? That's where we are now. So that's what I want. Uh, I want the, the purple finger to be the badge of pride. And, um, and if we can do that, then we got a real good chance of, of uh, restoring this, uh, this old girl. All right, moving on. Uh, Jeffrey Adams. Uh, Bill, are the transcripts of your Apollo Heroes, Apollo, comma, Heroes and other remarkable docuseries available anywhere? Your writing is so clear yet captivating. I'd like to study and share them with others. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Um, we talked about this quite a bit at the top, so just just to add and just to address the written I issue, uh, it is a work for hire that is owned by Daily Wire, and I am grateful uh, to have been offered the chance. I'm 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 very proud of it, and I'm very uh, and I've been paid for it. So. Whether or not they will make a written transcript available is up to them, but I will certainly mention it. Uh, I think it's good for Daily Wire and it's good for me too. And it's very kind of you to say. Um, uh, we did, uh, we, as I mentioned earlier, we, we had to use an audio transcript, which I'm sure was an automatic transcription thing, which gets you probably 90% of the way. But there's still some errors. If you if you record this thing and then run it through one of these, there's lots of software that'll do it for you. But ideally, I'd like to see it released as a as a, a book or a you know, study guide or something like that. Because uh, I'm very proud of it and thank you. Oh, there you go. King of Cleans, clever, in caps, is shouting at us now from Twitch. And thank you for this. I can still get the old Cold War series on Apple Podcasts. Yes, and I think you can get all of them on Apple Podcasts. Um, and I don't know what they cost, but I don't think they're too expensive. And, you know, this is, a, this is the world we live in. It costs money to produce them, and it costs money to uh, listen to them. And it's not an unreasonable price, and I'm very, very proud of it. So anyway, 
Hopefully that'll do it. Yep, there's a link. So there's a link to America's Forgotten Heroes, which I will now copy and put into the uh, chat for uh, for YouTube. Hang on, because it's in the Twitch. I think this will do it. Copy, and then I have to... It opens up a separate browser. Hang on a second. Hang on, kids. I'll just put the link in uh, in YouTube as well. Hopefully. Boom. Bam. There it is. Um, okay. Uh, so this is actually working really well. This this dual streaming thing. I'm real happy with uh, with how this is uh, is turning out. Let me get back to Twitch like so much yet. All right. Yeah, we still got some time. Um, okay. Uh, on to Chris Taylor. Um, Bill, your undeserved decline in YouTube view counts remind me of the Spinal Tap problem. You're not less popular, but rather your appeal is becoming more selective. As I recall, at the end of that movie, when all seems to be falling apart, one of the band's songs goes to number one in Japan. When you pull away from day-to-day -day politics, a lot of what you talk about is universal human nature and aspirations. Have you put any effort into marketing your work overseas or on overseas video platforms like... Uh, Nikonico or Daily Motion. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for the compliment. To be honest with you, Chris, I don't think I've done much work to try and promote this thing in this country. Uh, part of that is, uh, most of that is uh, lack of experience and resources. And please don't misunderstand this. It's not a lack of interest in um, uh, in getting them seen. That's my number one priority. But the mechanics of, of marketing, doing the marketing on my own, is one of those things that just reaches the disc full error uh, kind of thing. Um, we talked at the top of the show about how if we go with this new format for um, for right angles, that will uh, that will mean that uh, plenty of outlets for me to do live commentary on on the political issues of the day, and then I'd go back to writing, uh, hopefully a segment a week, right, a firewall or something a week, something produced and something is not ephemeral something is not about um the news stories of the day that's kind of what um uh, moving back to america was uh trying to try and just just get just get the, the fingers going and then do um you know maybe a maybe maybe these things will look kind of like the um, Virginia class subs compared to the Seawolf class subs. Or, you know, every now and then I'm sure there'll be something to light me up enough to really dig in deep, but you know, lighter, faster version of, of that with the same feel and, and, and hopefully the same kind of timelessness. So that's the plan anyway. Um, right now, as I said, I'm under a tremendous uh, writing burden uh, for this new series and I'm behind on that schedule-wise. So uh, I'm working on that as well. But nevertheless, um, it is certainly... Uh, uh, where we need to go and um, and uh, yeah and I'm you know embarrassed about how uh, poorly done it's been so far hang on CP Tome says Mark Melville's long as he was flown to EAA museum this week by Mark Zeitlin brought a tear no longer going to see Mike and Sally in their um, long easy at air venture um, Mark Zeitlin is the guy who did all of the maintenance work on my long easy He's a great guy, great guy, um, and um, and Mike Melville is one of the best people I've ever met in my life. Mike Melville is the world's first civilian astronaut. He flew Spaceship One past the Kármán line uh, in 2004, I think, and um, and and when I was 
owner of a long easy for about a little less than a year, I think. Um, uh, Mark Zeitlin would work on it. Sometimes he'd fly down from Tatchpee. That's where Mike Melville is. But the thing I remember the most is the first time I had a real problem with the thing, and I had one of those engine failures. The guy who came down to work on my long easy was the first civilian astronaut. Mike Melville just flew down and just helped me Help me, you know, we took the cowl off and he said, oh, here's your problem. And I said, by God, that is the problem. Um, so, uh, yeah, Mike is a great guy. My favorite uh, story of, that Mike told me personally, um, just for, for those, because you mentioned him by name and he certainly is an amazing guy. Uh, by the way, the first, uh, the first civilian astronaut was an African-American. Um, uh, where did I get that question from? I guess I must have caught it in the in the stream here, did I? Huh. I guess I did. Anyway, um, so here's the here's the best story Mike ever told me. Um, for those of you that are fans of aviation, I'll make this quick. Um, uh, Bert Rutan is is he's, I've known a lot of bright people. I've known a few geniuses, but I've never known anybody who was as far out of the box as, as uh, Bert Rutan. And his ability to visualize things and 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 just simply... Bert Rutan had a problem when he was trying to build the world's first private suborbital vehicle. He needed it to go fast on the way up and he needed it to, come, to go slow on the way down. That's the fundamental problem. Fast up, slow down. So does he talk about speed brakes or flaps or anything? It's not going to do it. So he breaks the airplane in half. That's what he does. He flies it up, and then when it gets to the top, he breaks it in half. And then it comes down in in half, like, like it's just been cracked in the middle, comes down at 90-degree angle to the tail to the, to the fuselage, and then he puts it back together again, lands the thing. Who can think of that? Nobody. Nobody can think of that. Nobody, except for except for Bert. So Bert has built a number of airplanes, and, and a great number of them, I want to say 25 or something, have been built and flown out of his designs. And one of his coolest designs was called the Ares. It was a, a carbon fiber, wicked looking, uh, potential ground attack aircraft, light ground attack aircraft. And my understanding is, um, hey, flying 2003 says, my claim to fame is Dick Rutan made me sick while doing an aileron roll in his long easy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I've, I've driven around mountain trails in a little Polaris with Dick Rutan and and had a lot of fun doing it. So anyway, here's the here's the story Mike uh, told me. So apparently they actually did get to mount the um, was it the Gao, uh, you know the the giant 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 gun, and they put it on the on the Ares, which is a very light airplane. A ten's not terribly heavy, but you know twin engine, made of aluminum, steel ribs, and they put that gun on the Ares for a test thing. And Mike was flying the test flight. So he's he's rolling in with this super light thing called the Ares, which has been terribly modified since then. By the way, it's been just completely. Maybe it's the Proteus. No, no, the Ares. It just after it was done. So anyway, um, so he goes in and uh, and he's he's doing this attack run, and and Mike told me that when I fired that gun, I felt absolutely certain that the aircraft was suddenly moving backwards through the air. That was when, that was how much kick this thing put out. I thought I thought that firing that gun had actually stopped the aircraft and, and was knocking me back through the air, backwards. I went, Sounds like a bit of a kick, Mike. He said, yeah, yeah, uh, I bet it was. Um, 
Okay, uh, moving on here. Um, I think I, I sorry, Facebook, but I think I, I think I can at least get through the questions here. Uh, Judy Sheiks. Hi, Judy. Hi, Bill. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. Um, <laughs> I've never heard this before. Uh, <laughs> uh, regarding the vegetants speech last night, uh, I didn't see the one last night. Uh, I didn't even know he made it until today. Was he calling for patience because of something nefarious, or was he just trying to blunt the results of what I hope will be a massive red wave? Frankly, I'm amazed that election results take so long to come in. Someone mentioned last night that states can tell us where a winning lottery ticket was sold within minutes. The credit card companies can keep real-time data on millions of purchases a day. If the government wants to quickly and efficiently count the votes, it can be done. We've got technology unheard of in the elections back in the 70s, and back then we knew the results by the end of the night. Uh, amen and, and, and hail Judy. I think we've covered most of that, hopefully, but uh, just to button up what you're saying here, um, I'd rather have accuracy than speed. And but the, the salient point is, given the examples you just gave, that means we all know that any state is capable of delivering reliable results, the accurate results, very quickly. Florida was a perfect example in 2020. Florida is with the third most populous state now, fourth, one of those two. Uh, and Florida ran them through the machines, got out a reliable number quickly. Um, the, the states that didn't get out a number that night were the states that had a, a, you know, a bunch of uh, you know, tinkering to do. So there you go. There it is right there. Fly in 2003. The longer they take to count, increases the opportunity to cheat. Correct. That's exactly it, period. Um, now, as I've already addressed a lot of that issue before, I'm not so, I'm not so impressed with the new technology. I'm especially not impressed with uh, electronic voting machines. And I think we need to go back to... Um, to uh, paper ballots, and um, and most importantly, election day, in-person voting, because mail-in voting is just a license to steal. It's just that simple. And if you didn't believe it before, you might want to watch 2,000 Mules, uh, and you'll be clear just exactly how much fraud is going around, not quite in broad daylight, but certainly uh, not with, like, the highest possible levels of security, meaning, um, you know, there you go. Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly right. Action Context says, says Democrats' victory strategy is count until you win. Yes, and that goes back to 2000 uh, because the 2000 election in Florida between Bush and and, um, and Gore was actually very simple, right? What does the law say? Well, the law says that the that the votes in Florida are, are to be counted by the machine. So they, the machine does a count, and, and um, Bush wins by a narrow margin, no question. What happens then? Well, the law says that if the if the if the if it is within a certain margin, I don't know what the margin is, maybe one or two percent, whatever it is. If the margin of victory is within a certain narrow margin, then the law says that you can do a recount. So they did the recount, and Bush won that too, and that should have been the end of it. Period. Right? Period. When you started getting people with the hanging chads, now you know you're dealing with people who are trying to finesse the system trying to get a result. And once again, they're using the same excuse that they used when we were talking about voter IDs a few minutes ago. Well, you know, some old people, uh, they, they, or, you know, they, they punched ballots, but they just filled the ballots out wrong. Well, I'm sorry to tell you then, look, a ballot is a process. Voting is a process, and there are rules for the process. Not a lot of them, really, actually pretty simple. But 
the ballot isn't your opinion. The ballot is essentially a legal document that you submit, and if it's incorrectly submitted, then that's on you, right? There are instructions there, and if you if you value your vote, you might want to check this thing before you submit it. So this business about, you know, with these guys, uh, yeah, is, that, is that a dimpled Chad? Was somebody trying to poke through? They didn't have the strength, you know, to punch through this hole, what they did on all the other ones, you know, maybe they were just getting, you know, their, their blood sugar was low. That's... When you when you allow it to get to that point, then you're you're then it, then you're you're complicit in your own extermination, right? George Bush should have been saying from the beginning, what does the law say? The law says count it once. If it's so close, count it again. We counted it once. I won. We counted it again. I won. Period. The end, right? The end. But no, 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 no. When you got the media, you can do it. Well, well what about if you, if, if, what if the, if the voter intended to vote one way, but the vote actually came out the other way, don't you think we should be, you know, trying to get what their intent was and, and not steal their vote? No. If they can't fill out the ballot correctly, then, then that ballot is, is, then if you cannot fill out a ballot, then you, then you don't deserve to vote, right? You're not being excluded. You're not being excluded because of your race, sex, national origin, sexual preference. If you can't put the dots on the dots, then then this election thing is a lot more complex than um, than your capabilities are. Then that's it. A ballot is a, is an is an action. A vote is an action. It's not just your opinion. It's an action. You have an opinion, and then you have to go through these steps in order for your opinion to become viable and count. And so long as no one is preventing you from going through that process, this idea of voter suppression is absolute nonsense, ridiculous. It's not voter suppression if somebody makes a mistake on their ballot. And to pretend that we're going to have teams of lawyers now and, and observers trying to divine what they really meant rather than what they actually did who, why did we? Why did Republicans allow it to get to that point? Why, why? Right. So, so what happened in Florida was the strategy was keep counting until, until you have the win, and that's what they did with um, um, Al Franken's campaign, right? Franken lost that election, and they just well, there's still ballots coming in. Well, if they're still coming in, it doesn't matter because this is election day. They have to be in by this point. And if they're not in now, then they're then they're lost. Well, no, no, it's not fair to the people. So the ballots are still coming in. And I recall specifically in the case of Franken, it was I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something close to this, right? Um, where uh, so, oh look, well, why do you know? We found a we found a, a truck full of ballots that apparently had gotten a flat tire or something. Really? Yep. How many ballots are in there? Two thousand. How much is Franklin trailing by? Eighteen hundred. Really? Okay. So how did the votes break? Turns out that every single one of those votes was for Al Franken. Well, the chance of 2,000 votes all being for Al Franken in an election that is that close to 50-50, the, the nearest whole number to that is zero. It's 0. 0.0000000000 chance that that is uh, real. Of course it's fraudulent. We just went along with it. We just went along with it. Um, and and if we go along with it, then we deserve what happens. Uh, let's see here. Um, that one's a little theoretical for me, I think, and this one's awful long. 
Eduardo, uh, who I think said had to check out, he says he regrets to inform you that we've lost South America to the left. Brazil, its last bastion of freedom, shall become its newest iteration of Venezuela, like Argentina and Colombia already. From next, as of next year, as the presidency fell to the convicted for corruption, yet released by an equally corrupt Supreme Court, uh, Luia da Silva. Uh, the election was filled with foul play on the part of the left. Okay, and and he goes on into details. They uh, they knew of a fraud attempt, the censoring. So so basically, they just had their 2020. Uh, Eduardo, I'll, I'll 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 just tell you now um, what. Um, what I told myself and, and, and our, our little circle here back in 2020, and I said this because it was the only bright spot I could find. It wasn't the way I wanted it to go, but given it, this is it. In 2020, after it became clear that this, was, that this travesty was actually going to happen, I said the only way to cure people of socialism and progressivism is to give it to them, and that's what we did. And it looks like my theory is correct. It looks like by giving, by giving America the progressivism straight up, this is what they want, folks. They've been, they've been wanting this forever. Um, but now they've got a chance to actually do it. And so now we see all of this defund the police. Uh, you know, um, we, we saw their, their behavior during COVID. We saw... Um, we saw all the stuff. We saw the trans athletes, saw all of it, right? So, um, uh, presumably, Brazilians are going to have to go through this as well. And hopefully, they'll get the same education that we seem to have gotten. It's going to be very interesting to see uh, how the country looks uh, six days from now, not five days from now, six days from now, um, how the country looks. Uh, because there's one thing I am sure of, and this is, sounds like it's bad news, it's actually good. This is one thing I'm sure of. If we win as big as we do, the left will not change course. They will double down. If, if we win big, they will be convinced it's because they weren't progressive enough. I guarantee you that's what they will do. They don't have it in them to change course. They're, they're ideologues in there, and they're lunatics. And, and they're much like the communists in this regard, not, in terms of their, not just in terms of their outcomes, but in terms of this magical thinking belief that they are infallibly right. So if they lose the way I think they're going to lose, then they will become more progressive, not less progressive. And that will continue until that party essentially doesn't win anything anymore, at which point it's possible that they will rebrand themselves and move away from this catastrophic uh, uh, policy of theirs. Now, the, the, the downside, or not the downside really so much as the, the, the obligation is, if we win this thing big, then we have to deliver. And we cannot deliver legislation with two out of three. So we better do something pretty aggressive to make it clear to the people who had voted Republican for the first time that this was, the, that this was a good choice for them. And if that means going to them and saying, this is what we want to do to improve your lives, and that Democratic president has blocked it, and, and we're doing everything we can here within the law. Do that. Yeah, do that. Um, mm -hmm. Well, Marisha says the prediction the left will call us poll-watching voter suppression and intimidation and try to invert the cheating. And that worked. It worked in the past. But I think, I, 
you know, I just think that I think that you can just eventually call racism when you're calling racism over things like, you know, white bread or black holes, when you're saying that that's racist, then when you when you say that voter suppression is racist, now we're at the point where, oh, really? What a, what a shocking surprise. You know, so what happens when you overuse your single weapon? Right. So there you go. Rusha, I'm sorry, I'm going to skip that one. It's just uh, if you bring it in next time, it's awfully uh, esoteric and and uh, I'm getting close to wrapping up time. So I got one, two, two to go, and I'll take those. And if you want to uh, bring that back next time, I'll, I'll take it first thing, I promise. All right, here we go from uh, Charles uh, Tomes. I would imagine that's probably a relation to CP Tomes. Uh, from an undisclosed location at 35,000 feet, Darth Chuck the Merciless asks, I already like it. Recently, I was face-to-face -face with the Demon, a founding member of, the famous, of a famous hard rock band who said when asked about the Donald, quote, I have known him for decades before he ran for president, one word, relentless, driven. Unlike other politicians, he says what he means and what he believes, unlike other politicians who say what they think you want to hear, discuss. That is all. All right, uh, Mr. Tomes, uh, that's what we will discuss. Uh, so let's take the, the most, um, let's just take the most uh, pertinent example today. I checked on this, and I wanted to make sure that this was true, but I, I did get it sourced from two different uh, places and, and a third one anecdotally because, frankly, I, I thought this was too good to be true. Uh, I have spent – I've been an amateur historian for quite a long time, and, and the, the thing I study in history is is warfare, military history. That's, that's my bag, man, um, and not just of the United States but throughout the world. And so – it's not a question of my opinion. Looking at the evidence of how humans have behaved before becomes pretty clear what causes wars and what prevents wars. So um, it is credibly reported that at some point during his presidency, Donald Trump was having a private moment with Putin. I think they were at a dinner, but I, I'm not sure about that. But they were having a, a private talk, one-on-one -on -one talk, with just the interpreter, and Trump said uh, – Vladimir, if you if you go into the Ukraine, I'm going to hit Moscow. He didn't say he's going to nuke Moscow. He said I'm going to hit Moscow. And he didn't say I'm going to hit Russia. He said I'm going to hit Moscow. That's a profoundly profoundly uh, intelligent thing to say. If he said I was going to nuke Moscow, then that's just plain saber rattling and 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 threatening threatening. But when he says I'm going to hit Moscow. He could mean a military strike. He could mean some kind of sanctions, but he probably means a military strike. Now, if you're Vladimir Putin, you have to ask yourself, is he bluffing? Probably. But then again, maybe not. He's done these kind of things before. So what Trump had done, when Trump says, when he speaks his mind and gets out of the diplomatic, you know, jargon and all the rest of it, blah, 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 blah. He's like, look, if you do this, if you do this, then I'll do this, just so we're clear, right? If you do this, then I will do that. That's, that's, a, that's a bank, right? You can take that to the bank. Now, if you're Putin and you want the Ukraine, then you have to, uh, then you have to ask yourself, okay, is, is this going to be as easy as I thought it would? The technical term for this is on a tactical level rather than a strategic level, but the tactical term for this is 
When Trump says, if you go into Ukraine, I'm going to hit Moscow, what he has done is he has enormously complicated the firing solution for, for Vladimir Putin. He's made, he's, made the, he's made Putin's assessment of success infinitely more complex and infinitely more unreliable, right? He's added, not only added variables to Putin's equation on whether or not to go into Ukraine, but he's added, he's added variables of such monumental weight that you have to reassess the entire situation. So one of the things that you can say is, well, Putin can say, well, Trump is, is bluffing. Maybe, maybe not. And from everything I read in history, it's that maybe not bluffing that has kept the peace every single time. Every single time. Right? Um, there you go. Astronaut for the win. This is a 44 Magnum, most powerful handgun in the world, and it would blow your head clean off. So you got to ask yourself one question. Do you feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Astronaut, that's exactly right. I'm pointing a gun at your head. Maybe I've got a round left, and maybe I don't. So, you feel lucky? And now he's made it much more difficult. He hasn't made it impossible for Putin to invade Ukraine, but he's made it much more difficult. He made it difficult enough to have not taken the chance. But the second he sees, you know, Captain Easter Bunny out there with his ice cream cone wandering off the stage and shaking hands with people that aren't there, he's saying to himself, now is the time. People say that it was the botched uh, evacuation of Afghanistan that caused, I think, that caused Putin to, to make the decision to go. But ultimately, it's not that the United States handled that so badly because there are some things that we can handle very well, and he knows it. The reason Putin in, invaded the Ukraine in 2022 is because he knew that the American president and his administration and the military, all of it, was absolutely, absolutely incapable of a coherent aggressive, intelligent response. So, um, so he did. And, and he pretty much got away with it, except for the fact that he did not expect, I think, the, it's not just the U.S. reaction, it's the NATO reaction was much, much, much more muscular than I thought it would be. Um, because this war would have been over a long time ago if it hadn't been for javelins in the beginning, and then HIMARS, and now all the rest of this stuff, right? He is he went to war against NATO, and he bet the farm that it would just be Ukraine. And I maintain, I maintain that the that the how do I want to phrase this? I know what I'm trying to say. Um, I believe that Putin was certain that this former comedian named Zelensky, not a serious politician, a lightweight, a, a clown, basically. I know that when Putin was making his calculations, he was certain that faced with imminent personal demise, and in other words, there are tanks outside your building, Mr. President, that he was going to run. And when Zelensky said, I don't need helicopters, I need ammunition, that was, it wasn't the turning point because because it was right at the very beginning, so it's not really anything to turn. But when Zelensky said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, he said that was the moment that, the, that, that this thing turned into a war and not a rout. That instant, that moment in time, that just... And 
and the phrasing, which I'm sure he didn't think about, which is why I believe it, which is why I think it's so, why I think that sentence is going to go down with, with some of the sentence of, it's going to, it's going to go down with, um, you know, uh, with, um, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches. It's going to go down with Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's one of those moments where somebody says something so profoundly true that it becomes legendary. It just turned the war on. If he had run, then I think, I think, I'm not saying Ukraine would have just simply completely crumbled, but I, I, I don't think their heart would have been in it. But when they hear the president of the country saying, I'm not going anywhere, I'm going to grab a rifle. And, and, and there we go. Now he's got a real problem. Now he's got resistance. And when they pushed them back from Kiev, which they did pretty much on their own, when they pushed the Russians back from Kiev, that was the, I think, the strategic turning point. After that, that bought them enough time to get um, uh, U.S., NATO, but mostly U.S. weapons on the scene. And um, of all of the, the tragedies and the personal tragedies of, of Ukraine, the, the single great geopolitical strategy that Putin has foisted on his own country is he took the Russian army to war. That was a mistake. That was a mistake because I think the one thing everybody can agree upon is that I am much, 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 much less afraid of the Russian military now than I was before I saw it in action. Much, much, much less afraid. And furthermore, I'm, and furthermore, watching the Russians on the battlefield put some kind of perspective on how effortlessly the U.S. military is, uh, is supreme, right? I mean, it's almost like you would think that, given how successful the United States has been, the 20 years of the war, um, it, it makes it look like, yeah, of course, you know, of course a helicopter assault would work, of course... A, a strike would work. Of course, our, our, this would work. That would work. Of course, it would. It's, it's just automatic. It's not automatic. Nope. It's all down to doctrine. Um, it's doctrine. Uh, and no one. So I'm not afraid of the Chinese militarily. It's not that they don't have the hardware. Although I have some doubts about the hardware. I have plenty of doubts about the uh, Sukhoi. Uh, was it 52 felon? Supposed to be a match for the uh, for the Raptor. I'll believe it when I see it. They've only got four of them in the world. Um, so um, they say the Russians are saving the best for NATO. Uh, Pusher says that in the YouTube stream. Uh, Pusher, I find that hard to believe. I, 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 I find it hard to believe that you would be that close to winning the war and then have your entire ass handed to you and pushed back and you're saving your, you know, your knockout blow. The... The forces that he has there are of progressively lower quality every day. He put the A team in, and the A team got its butt handed to him. And um, and this idea that oh, we're you know we're saving the, the you know no, I just don't think that's true. In any event, in any event, um, uh, those weapons, NATO weapons. Oh, I remember doctrine. Okay, Russia doesn't have this. China doesn't have this. Europe's got it, but they don't really have the hardware side of it. But they get the software side. They get the they get the theoretical side. But it's airland doctrine, right? It's basically saying we're not fighting a land war. The battlefield is not 
the surface of Ukraine. The battlefield is the surface of Ukraine. It's the airspace over Ukraine. It's the oceans uh, abutting Ukraine. And it's the outer space over Ukraine. That's the battle space. And you've got to do all of them. You've got you've to, if you can control all of those, then you, then you win. The, the, the Chinese, the, the Japanese had this exact same problem in World War II, precisely the same problem. The, arm, the Japanese army and navy hated each other more than they hated the Americans. They didn't talk to each other, didn't coordinate anything. They were just two completely separate and distinct entities. Meanwhile, uh, when, when, so when Japan is trying to take Guadalcanal in World War II, there's a Japanese Navy that has a set of objectives, and then there's a Japanese Army that has a completely different set of objectives, and both sides are, are, are dragging their feet, and, you know, I don't want to do this. Well, I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to lose my Navy to make this Army guy look good, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, on Guadalcanal, you've got Army aircraft landing, you've got Navy aircraft landing, you've got Marine aircraft landing. You're all landing at Henderson Field. There was no Air Force then, so, so it's like... Fire them up. Well, this is Navy ammunition. There was actually some of that at Henderson. You, you guys, you guys are Marine aircraft, and you can't use this fuel. This is Navy fuel. That that attitude lasted about ten minutes. You got a you got a fighter here. Yeah, you need a, you need gas. You get, you're gonna go after the Japanese. Yep, tanker up, man. And that that ability to combine these things is why we're so successful. So, I'm not worried about China. I'm especially not worried about China now after I've seen Soviet weapons in play and China's China's. Willingness to risk the Taiwan gambit has gone into the toilet. I don't think, I don't think they've got it. I I think before this happened, they thought they might have a chance. You know, we got a lot of tanks and we got a lot of big hardware, and then some guy steps out from behind a tree and you don't have a tank anymore. Um, and, and more to the point, I think they realized that while they probably think that the Taiwanese could be run out of weapons, they don't think that America is going to be run out of weapons. So. You know, if their calculation was, well, I don't know if America will enter the war, enter world, a war with China in order to fade Taiwan. If I was president, I'd make it clear we would, but that would be how you would prevent this. But in any event, what they did learn was, was that if they go into Taiwan, they won't just be facing the Taiwanese. They'll be facing the, uh, re the, uh, the Republic of China with every single weapon that America has at its inventory delivered to them through the back door. And that's a whole different thing. Um, and Putin's behavior, uh, Roy Hamill's talking about how, the way he treats his troops. I think you could make a case, just speaking as an amateur, as an amateur military historian, I think you make a pretty good case that the single, the single most important aspect of any conflict, number one, and I put this above supply, and I put this even above doctrine, and those are both more important than strategy or tactics or the weapons, but I think the single greatest factor is morale. I think it's morale. I think I think time and time and time and time and time again, we've seen that highly motivated people can be horrifically outnumbered uh, in both weapons and, and and numbers and everything, and they'll and they'll win. We saw it at Bastogne, and we saw it at um, San Luana, uh, not at San Luana at uh, Rourke's Drift. If you haven't seen the movie Zulu, I cannot recommend it highly enough. 1964, Michael Caine's first film. Uh, it is an astonishingly good movie. It really is superb. Uh, Action Comfort Tech, it's, it looks like it's a, a, a copy here. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Automod held a message. Uh, Action Comtech says, hey, Bill, the Marine Corps is 
is getting back to its correct maritime mission and being retasked to shooting Chinese floating stock from islands while defending their launch positions. This scares the spit out of the Chinese. That apparently was held for moderation because uh, somebody thought that shooting Chinese meant that, you know, shooting like Chinese people here. I'm talking about that. Uh, probably should have said uh, highly kinetic action against the uh, People's Republic, Army of the People's Republic of China. So talking about doctrine and coordination and stuff, we're masters of it. No one else can do it. I mean, people like Germany can do it, but they don't have a navy, right? So it's not that they don't get the doctrine, they just don't have the hardware. But look, I knew, I, the the thing that, the second I stopped really worrying about China was when I realized was that the, 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 the ships that fly the Chinese flag, that organization is called the People's Republic of China. The People's Republic Army's Navy. It, it literally is the People's Republic of China Army Navy. Something almost like that. Um, okay. Where's your, where's your heritage? Where's your traditions? Where's, your, where's your, um, your culture? Where's the naval culture? You don't have one. You're not a naval power. Um, and... and when Putin, when Putin had to lie, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about these these new recruits and all the stuff that they're going through. When he, when his, when his first in force, right, the force that was, that was in there in the first couple of days, when he had to lie and tell them that they are going on maneuvers in in Crimea, and then they find themselves in Ukraine. I actually, honestly, God thought, and I still think this. I don't believe I've ever heard of that in history. I don't think Genghis Khan lied to his soldiers about where they were going. I don't think. I don't think Xerxes lied to his soldiers. I think there's been plenty of times where soldiers didn't want to go, but I don't think anyone's ever been lied to about where they were going. When you have to lie to your troops like that, you know, what does that say? You know, I mean, wh what does it say? He's the last Tsar. Vladimir Putin, I'm sure of this, is the last Tsar. I don't know how long he's going to last. I thought he'd be out by now. There's no question about that. But he will be the last Russian Tsar. And what Russia becomes after this, I don't know. But he is the last KGB man in the government, and and so, uh, you know, and there's a, a significant amount of compelling evidence that he is uh, terminally ill, and terminally ill people will take risks that um, people who want to live a long and fruitful life won't take. Uh, hey, Tsar Vladimir the Fourth, well done, Eric. Um, the People's Republic of China's. <laughs> thank you very much for that action contact. The correct designation is. The People's Republic of China Army's Navy. Are you afraid of the People's Republic of China Army's Navy? Are you afraid of them? Because I think there's only, I know, there's only been two countries in history that know how to operate aircraft carriers, and that's the United States and the Empire of Japan. Um, and uh, the Empire of Japan, the Imperial Japanese Navy wasn't the Imperial Japanese Army's Navy. It was the Imperial Japanese Navy. I just finished about how, look, they were going to lose anyway. But but they could have done much, much better if they worked together, and they didn't. But you can't say that the Japanese Imperial Japanese Navy didn't have a culture. The IJN had a, had a much more, um, I think morale among the Japanese Navy was much higher than it was among the Army, much higher. But I think morale is the number one thing. And, and if you get a chance to watch Zulu, You'll see what happens when you have like, I don't know, what was it, 170-something British soldiers against 8,000 Zulus? You know? And, by the way, it, it bears mentioning just for the sake of it, 
that Zulu, which was made in 19, released in 1964, is astonishingly respectful of the Zulus. It's a, it's astonishing respectful. You know, it's not just a bunch of guys going ooga booga. You know, they they they. they go to great lengths to show how brave those warriors were, how fit they were. These Englishmen in, in, in the movie will say, that army can run, can run for 12 hours without stopping. They can run for 12 hours and then go into battle. So they don't, they don't treat them like, you know, they, they, that's the first movie that I'm aware of, Western movie, that really just basically said, no, 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 these guys are serious business. Rourke's Drift, yeah, absolutely. Rourke's Drift, Rourke's Drift is one of those five cases in history that just almost defy imagination they are such amazing stories and not only um not only did they tell the story correctly but they they told the story masterfully there's no reason to do Rourke's Drift again after they made Zulu it's just astonishingly good movie it can't be improved upon um and um and uh Rose Thistleart says the chosen the chosen few yeah the Chinese uh, mass attacks against um, US, U.S. positions, and now you've got the Americans pushed back to the Chosin Reservoir, and they're essentially out of supply, and they're cut off, and they're outnumbered, what, 30 to 1 or something like that? And they just hold, right? They hold. Because they, because they, they, they look, the reason they hold, right, is because, is because the, the guys, because the Marines of the, at the Chosin Reservoir and whatever army guys were there. I honestly don't remember whether it was mostly army or marines. I, I want to say marines. It doesn't matter. The Americans at the Chosin Reservoir or at um, Quezon or any, any of these other places, they fight like that, not because they've got powerful weapons on their side. They'll fight like that because, because they know that somebody's coming for them, right? They know that somebody's coming for them. And... That is, that is why the, that's why the morale is so high. Because these guys know that, that, that if they get in trouble, somebody's coming for them. And if they, even if the rescue arrives too late, they're not going to leave them there to, you know, rot in the sun or be paraded around town. Somebody's coming for them. They're, 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 they've got backup, whether it gets there in time or not, which is what launched me on that tirade of that speech in 2012 where I was saying we ought to break every window in, in, um, in uh, Benghazi, because even if we couldn't get helicopters there for four hours, we could get jets over that city in 30 minutes. So why don't we just send some jets over that city and break every window? Let's send let's send, let's send 14 hornets over uh, Benghazi and put them in at 700 feet AGL and push them supersonic. And let these let these bastards know that those guys that are that are up there on the embassy roof are not alone. That there are people coming. The sky gods are on their way, and and you don't want to mess with the sky gods. So you better just back out now, man. That's what we should have done, and and I wish we had done. But nevertheless, thank you very much for that, um, Settle Cougar. Very nice of you. Um, and and what a fascinating name. Uh, yes, uh, John Pershing and a number of others are saying maybe time for the Japanese to build their own navy. Absolutely, it's time for them to build their own navy. Um, and it was the first Marine Division. Thanks. Yes, the the Japanese. This sounds so condescending. I don't know how to say it. I'll just say what came into mind. The Japanese have proved after World War II they know how to behave themselves. They don't want this. They're not looking for military glory. But at the same time, they realize you know this American backup kind of depends on who the um, the 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 vegetant is, and uh, 
And the shame that, that I have to deal with in terms of us going back on our word is almost too much to bear. So, yes, the, the, I had a lot of problems with the F-35, and I still maintain that it was that the, that the purchasing of the F-35 was shamefully criminal. With that said, with that said, I, I openly admit that I had underestimated that jet. And, um, and because of the vertical takeoff capability of the, uh, of the Navy version of that, the Marine version, I guess, um, you can now turn a, a, a helicopter carrier, an assault ship like Iwo Jima, now that is a, it's an escort carrier. It's exactly what it is. It's an escort carrier like, um, like uh, in World War II. It's not a full Nimitz class or Ford class, you know, behemoth, but you've got what, what, 20 of the, of the most advanced aircraft in the world on this deck. When we came up with a, with a, with the vertical takeoff F-35, we essentially it was the same as building another five or six aircraft carriers. Is it the C? Thank you, uh, big house. F-35C can take off vertically, which means that all of these things that used to be helicopter assault ships that were designed to support marine landings, those ships are now mini carriers. And, and presumably U.S. doctrine is, is, um, is evolving to represent that, right? Used to be, okay, so these guys can go in and cover a marine landing, but now with the F-35s there, you can actually say, well, maybe we'll just go in and shoot down some bad guys' airplanes. Maybe we'll just do combat air patrols with this thing that used to be a helicopter platform. You know, boom. Um, they uh, looks like looks like the F thirty five has a nickname that's not going away, uh, which is unfortunate. But you know, it's also kind of, I guess it'll end up being like the warthog or the great smoking thunder pig. So the the pilots are calling uh, the, the F-35, they're calling it Fat Amy. Uh, and uh, it's not easy to um, mistake why, because it's kind of a squat little uh, thing and it's got a short nose. But in any event, it looks good. The F-22 is an astonishing piece of work. I, I just don't believe the Chinese. I will believe the Chinese and the Russian stealth fighters perform the way they say they perform when I see them in combat. Until then... <laughs> Eric Blake says, uh, Fat Amy, as in Schumer, no, but bonus points for that. Um, uh, yeah, an active and action uh, context says, the Marine, unofficial Marine Corps motto, no better friend, no worse enemy. That should be on our money. That should be, that, that is, what's the military doctrine of the United States? What is your, what is your geostrategic statement? If, define the United States of America. Define it. No better friend, no worse, no worse enemy. That's it. That's it. That's that simple, really. Friend of what? Freedom. No, no better. If if you're fighting for freedom, you got no better friend. If you're fighting against freedom, you've got no worse enemy. That's it. Period. That should be it. Yes, yeah, Marusha points out the history of America's history of turning our worst enemies into our best friends. That's the genius of it. That's never been done before. Never been done before. Dave Big Booty says you drop a few Amy Schumers into the enemy's country, and there will be the equivalent of a nuclear winter. For some reason, reading the first part of that sentence, dropping a few Amy Schumers produced a scatological response for some reason. I don't know why. We're going to do one more, and then we're done uh, with the uh, membership page, and that's, uh, that's the advantage of being a paying customer. Um, you're right, uh, Rose. I was kind of being facetious just a little bit. We should...
you're never going to beat Curtis LeMay, man. That's, I just, it's, to me, is I think that maybe the best single thing I've ever heard of a military man say. I told the story a hundred times, very quick. Uh, when Curtis LeMay, after World War II, when he was building the Strategic Air Command, which was our nuclear deterrent before we got the subs online, or the ground-based missiles. So when, when Curtis LeMay is building the Strategic Air Command, the, the, um, the motto uh, of the, and the, and the, um, the, not the logo, the, the emblem of the U.S. Strategic Air Command, which doesn't exist anymore, was a gauntlet. It was a, like a fist of a knight, a gauntlet with lightning bolts against the, against a sky background, sky background, I think. And below that it said, peace is our profession. And somebody asked Curtis LeMay, one of the most ruthless generals we've ever had. Uh, somebody confronted him about that and said, uh, General LeMay, um, you know, you, you claim that you're the strategic air command. You say peace is your profession, but you now have more destructive power than anything in history. What on earth would make you say that for your motto? And LeMay said, no, no, peace is our profession. War is just something we do for kicks. That is exactly, precisely, the, that, that is the posture that I would want. I, that's, that's exactly, if I was president, that's exactly what I would want. That would be the message I would send out. No, no, peace is our profession. We are dedicated to a peaceful world. Coming over there and kicking your ass is just something we do for fun. Boom. Boom. You have complicated, uh, you have... Um, you have, uh, what's the word? Now oh, you complicated their firing solution. Okay, last one uh, from Jamuld. Hello, Jamuld. Uh -huh. Hey, Bill, do you think it's odd that the mainstream media has recently started talking about a deadly strain of coronavirus right before the midterms? Could the deep state be trying to bring back the coronavirus? Massive amounts of mail-in ballots with no checks and balances measures? Uh, praise Vectron. Uh, hail Vectron to you, too. Um, the short answer is no, I don't think that's in play for this election. I think if, if it was going to be something in play, it would happen a long time ago. There's not time for something like that to spread between now and Election Day. Um, however, um, when I heard that a laboratory had created a strain of, uh, American lab, had created a strain of COVID with 80% fatality rate, my first question is, why did you do that, number one? And number two, why did you announce that? I mean, bubonic plague, the Black Death, the worst thing that ever happened to the human race ever, the worst thing that ever happened, had a mortality rate of between 30 and 40%. So now somebody's taken one of the most contagious viruses ever and made it 80% fatal. However, however, this is a cool comfort, by the way. I think this is, this is what a Republican Congress can do, you see? It's what a Republican Congress can do. We can launch some investigations into why this was done, who did it, and why, and what has happened to this 80% uh, fatal strain at Boston University. And maybe um, we want that, uh, all of it, including the documentation, so that we can burn it, burn it, kill it with fire, and you lose your federal backing. Um, that's what you can do when you have the Congress. Um, uh, okay, so Infidel42 says it was 80% fatal among rats, not humans. That's interesting. Uh, leave it to Dan Bonino, Bongino, who um, to 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 make the point here. Uh, it's an artificial virus because once you let something like that out into the population, there's a dynamic at work, and that is that the more 
lethal a virus is, the less contagious, contagious it has to be. That's not like luck or anything, that's just the equation. And basically it works like this. If you have a virus that's 80% fatal, then it kills off the host before it can replicate. Um, the, a successful, a success, a, a successful lethal virus is one that is hard to get and especially one that takes a while for symptoms. Like Ebola, any of these um, uh, blood uh, vessel diseases, I think you don't see symptoms, I want to say for eight days or something like that. That gives Ebola enough time to get into your system, multiply, and for you to spread it before it goes on. That number is called the R naught number, naught for meaning zero in British English. The R sub naught number is is how many people will one if you've got one infected person, how many people is that person going to infect statistically? And the higher the number, the more dangerous the bug is. If if it's I think I don't remember what it was for Ebola. I think it was less than two. Um, but if one infected person on average can infect six people, that's a worse risk than a virus that on average you infect one person with, obviously. And if it's below one, then the virus dies out immediately, right? So if it kills you fast, that's bad for the people who die, but it's much harder to, um, for the virus to maintain itself because if it, if it really killed people in two days, then everybody would lock themselves down for, like seriously, lock themselves down for a week, right? And I, when I say lock themselves down, I mean lock themselves down. And then it just burns out, right? That's it. Um, anyway, th it doesn't even matter, and I don't care if it's 80% fatal in mice. I think by now we ought to realize that the risks of this outweigh the benefits. Uh, and, and this is a typical example of scientific hubris. I've seen it in artificial intelligence. I've seen it in, in the search for extraterrestrials. I've seen it everywhere where these scientists are absolutely sure that they got everything covered. No, no, they can't, can't possibly go wrong. Well, that's what you've said before, and you've been wrong every time, right? Oh, no, no, we have fail-safes built in. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. No, I don't. First of all, you're a scientist, not an engineer. And, and secondly, you're doing this because you can, not because you should, and, and it's time to take your toys away now because you, you don't behave yourself. Right? That's it. Um, uh, I'll paint said I don't see them ever getting away with lockdown ever again. I couldn't agree with you more. I'll paint unless unless it's something with a high really high mortality in which case the government doesn't have to lock you down. This is the thing this whole story of covid, right? The whole story of covid was that the was that the 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 aggregate intelligence of 330 million people had it perfect after after 3 weeks. But after 3 weeks anybody who was thinking about it People who hadn't bought into the, the, the CNN um, COVID porn, after three weeks, virtually every person in this country with a brain, um, okay, I'll do that, Richard thinks. Every person in the country with a brain had done the fundamental research to say, how fatal is this thing? Okay, that's not too bad. Do, is it unique? I mean, is it is the fatality rate among every age group? No, it, it doesn't exist among zero to 10. It essentially doesn't exist for 10 to 20. 20 to 30, it's a blip. 30 to 40, it's a bigger blip. 50 to 60, and so on. So here it is. And, and every single individual American could look at this and say, where do I fit in this table? Well, if I'm in the highest possible mortality bracket and the, 
and the mortality rate is 2% or 3%, okay, that's a risk. Now tell me about the 3%. Well, of the 3% that died, they had average of two and a half comorbidities. They had diabetes or emphysema or overweight. And if I'm none of those things, I'm thinking, the chance of this being fatal for me is very low. It's low enough that I'm willing to go out. Now, if it turned out that that thing was killing 80% of everybody, my attitude towards the government wouldn't have to lock you down. You would lock yourselves down because you have the sense to know what is dangerous and what's not. You wouldn't have to be locked down by the government. You would, you would say to yourself, okay, there's a, there's a wildfire out there. You would treat it the way you would treat fallout, right? We ain't going outside for seven days, and then we're going to go out real, real carefully, and uh, we're going to hose ourselves down, all the rest of it, you know? So there you go. Um, all right, uh, uh, Eric Blake. Um, all right, so uh, so I, I think the, the question is, uh, what, uh, what's my take on, uh, on Twitter? Uh, and Elon, um, hey, there you go. That's sometimes, sometimes there is a shot of wisdom that just goes right through you like a like a diamond bullet. Speak into the microphone. Talk into the machine. Um, Roger Remd at fifty nine says, "To fear death is a choice." That's exactly it, man. I mean, really, that's exactly it. That's exactly the way I looked at this thing. My first attitude to my first response to Natasha when it was clear this thing was down there was I said, honey, I've looked at the mortality rate. Frankly, I think we ought to go down to LAX and start licking doorknobs. Let's just get it and get it over with. If we're going to survive it, we'll survive it. If we won't, we won't. But there's nothing. It's going. It's not. We're not going to be able to dodge this thing. Let's just go get it over with. Let's find out. Okay, so uh, so Twitter. So, um, look, it looks like Elon, well, he's, he, he owns a company, so there's that. Uh, I heard today for the first time that he's going to fire 50% of uh, of the staff. That couldn't be better news. Um, he, Elon Musk is not a conservative. Um, uh, I, I suspect he's really quite the libertarian, but Elon Musk does understand America, and he... Um, and he seems to genuinely understand the value of free speech from a purely mechanical point of view. He understands that freedom of speech is what leads to innovation, it's what leads to prosperity. All of the stuff that we have and the reason America is so uniquely successful is that is that the free exchange of ideas means that the best ideas win and the best ideas are almost always a synthesis of several ideas. So he understands the danger of, of stifling speech. Um, so, um, uh, I think his motivation is, is genuinely real. Uh, yes, the, yes, uh, Reclaim Bear says the British used their carriers well in the Falklands. Yep, pretty well. I agree. But it wasn't, I mean, I know the Falklands conflict fairly well. It, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a four-year battle of, of fleets. They had two carriers, right? It was Invincible and, um, Hermes, I think. Uh, and they had Harriers, and Harriers are, you know, they're not terribly effective aircraft. They're 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 cool that they can go straight up. And, and this was the 1980s, so yeah, it was absolutely cutting edge. The thing about the Falklands War is the Argentines were flying A4 Skyhawks, and they were flying 20 feet off the deck, and they got in underneath the air cover, and they did a lot of damage. They sank a bunch of ships. But yes, 
Um, look, the British, I think the British, I know for a certain fact that the British invented the angled deck carrier, which allows you to launch and land at the same time. So there you go. Anyway, um, so Twitter. So uh, first of all, first of all, um, um, uh, Musk seems to be serious about this. Uh, now that he's actually bought it, the changes are being made. He, there's a world where, um, where uh, he says he's going to do something and he doesn't. I've never seen him do that. Usually does what he says he's going to do and does it quickly too, but he's firing half the staff. He's already fired the top management. Now, what interests me about about uh, Elon Musk and Twitter is the is the kind of almost like casual offhand things that he's talked about for Twitter, in terms of Twitter becoming more of a content platform. Essentially, if I understand him correctly, just from reading the tea leaves, I think he has the idea of getting Twitter back to free speech. And then I think he's going to build Twitter out so that it'll be able to host videos. And uh, and if that happens, then then it really could be could be game over. Because, look, we post all of our videos are hosted on Rumble. We put them on YouTube. We've had a couple of strikes. I don't know if we've ever had two strikes at the same time, but we certainly had at least three strikes. If you get a strike on YouTube, not a, not a copyright thing, a strike strike, uh, then you don't get to post for a week. If you get two, then you don't get to post for two weeks. If you get three, everything that was ever on your website comes down. And 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 and, if you get if you got two strikes, or three strikes, they not only take your channel down, you can't get to the stuff. You can't download your own stuff anymore. They lock they lock your stuff away from you. So. If it turns out that um, that this happens, then then it could actually work because of the because of the, the network effect. Trump put out a, a, a platform, social media platform, it hasn't caught on because of the network effect. And the network effect is real simple. It's like the value of the network network is determined by the number of people on it. And if I have a network that's really really cool, but there's nobody on it, then um, then it's worthless. So. Rumble is a is a free street free speech platform, no question, but it's not easy to work with. It's not very well run. I'm very grateful for it, but it's not. It doesn't have reach. Twitter, on the other hand, comes with reach. So, if he if he can turn Twitter into a free speech platform for tweets, and then decides to open up to videos, then the advantages of posting a video on Twitter as opposed to on Rumble is that. You would think people would see it on Twitter. Same thing for Instagram and all the rest of it. Um, so, anyway, uh, that's um, that's uh, what I think about um, Musk and, and uh, Twitter. I think he's real about the um, freedom of speech thing, and I think he's actually moving in the direction he said he would, and that we would expect he would if he is uh, doing it about freedom of speech. Um, and uh, and if he can do that, then um, then he uh, that he can make he can. So Rumble is never going to displace YouTube because Rumble is not nearly as well run and and there's what a thousandth of the, probably less than that of the people on YouTube. So you have to go to YouTube. But if you can find something to compete with YouTube and compete with them on the free speech thing, then you might actually have something that could really change change the um, the um, the equation. It's going to change the equation anyway. Um, so.
we'll see. Anyway, that is that about that. Uh, yeah, okay. Nine o'clock, fair enough. Uh, this show is made possible by uh, the members at BillWiddle.com who uh, keep this thing going. And this is the third time in a row that we've gotten pretty close to three hours. So, by golly, you're, if you're not paying for this, then you're getting your money's worth. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess that'll do it. All right, so um, unfortunately, no stress for studio on Monday because I will be on transit to uh, Nashville and the Daily Wire and election coverage. And um, I will be back next Thursday for the Stratosphere Lounge. And a week from now, I imagine we will have a lot of fun things to talk about one way or another. Um, but I'm feeling pretty good about it, so uh, so we'll see. Uh, so um, until uh, next time, uh, Mouseketeers, uh, keep your powder dry, and, um, and we'll see you next Thursday.